Chris Hewitt and welcome to the penultimate spoiler special of the 2016 summer season. This one is dedicated to Justin Lin's Star Trek Beyond, the third, or if you're really keeping score, the 13th movie in the 50-year-old Star Trek franchise. Uh, So was 13 unlucky for some members of the audience, or does the movie... (laughs) live long and prosper in our hearts. Uh, well, joining me to dissect the film in forensic detail are two of the Federation's finest red shirts, uh, Helen O'Hara. Hello, I'm not a red shirt. We're totally red shirts. Uh, we would be dead within, I'd say, seconds. Did you know, as a, as a percentage, gold shirts die more, apparently? Really? In yeah, which I series? I don't know. I think it was the original series. Because in The Next Generation, the James gold Dyer. shirts are security. James, this is James Dyer. Yeah they will go down and get killed quite a lot. Whereas Red is command in Next Gen and they never get killed. That was very confusing. That's James Dyer. Hi. 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 Okay. Now, we've done all the intros, got the wonderful small talk out of the way. (laughs) Um, We're going to talk about the film in great detail, but before you hear from us, let's hear from the people who actually made Star Trek Beyond. So we have director Justin Lin and co-star slash co-writer Simon Pegg, Montgomery Scotty himself. Uh, Jimbo here, James, uh, spoke to them both. Uh, I joined him for the chat with Pegg, so have a listen to this long one with Justin Lin, isn't it? It's a, yes. it's a big old, long, in-depth, 40-minuter. It, it, yeah, it was, it was nearly an hour pre-edit. I don't know what it's been edited down to, but it was all gold, so I'm sure it's all there. <laughs> <laughs> and about 25 minutes with uh, Lord Pegg, so uh, do enjoy that. Of course, I will say... Before we go on, quick caveat, this is a spoiler special podcast, so if you've not seen Star Trek Beyond and you don't want to know what happens in the film, well, we talk about that with Lynn, with Peg, and Len amongst ourselves. So if you haven't seen the film, stop listening to this podcast, unless you're one of those weird spoiler junkies who gets up really early on Monday morning to check what's happened in the latest episode of Game of Thrones, so you don't have to watch it. I don't know who would do that. Some weirdo, probably. Uh, so if you're, if you're one of those people, it's fine, listen to it, but if you're not, go and see the film and then come back and listen to it then. All right? Everyone happy? Enjoy the interviews. Uh, Justin Lin, welcome to the Empire Podcast. How are you, sir? Thank you. Thanks for having me. Good, good, good. Uh, so we saw the film, and I must admit, as a long-time Star Trek fan, I very, very much enjoyed it. Uh, uh, thank you. That means a lot. And I'm going to jump right in there with uh, Sabotage, uh, which, to my mind, I would say is a fairly solid contender for scene of the year. Uh, <laughs> phenomenal sequence. I mean, how soon in the production of this film did that scene come into your head? How, you know, when did that take shape? It was pretty early on. Um, you know, when I, when I f- first was approached by JJ and we had a conversation, I had about three days to think about the challenge, which is, it was such an unusual process because um, I was actually shooting in December at the end of December and JJ called me and we talked and he said, do you know anything about Star Trek? Do you want to take it over? And uh, I said, well, then give me a few days to think about it. And uh, in those three days, I had to kind of figure out in two and a half months what we're going to come up with. Um, I had never worked with Simon or Doug um, and I, I've done those fast movies and I thought those were the shortest amount of time you can have, which is two years. <laughs> and uh, this one was a year and a half. You know, and so the Enterprise takedown was kind of the uh, is what I wanted to start off with the film. That was the first idea. Um, I wanted to try to deconstruct the Federation, Star Trek, and hopefully we can kind of reaffirm uh, why we love it so much. Um, But (laughs) the crazy thing was that we're starting with such a huge kind of uh, sequence 
we needed all these other pieces uh, in the back end. And so somehow the sabotage thing came, that was probably the second idea I had. Um, and it was I knew it was going to go somewhere in the end of second act. Um, and obviously the song has a lot of... Uh resonance for people who are big fans of JJ's first mm-hmm. 2009 film because it's the song that essentially starts the film. Yeah. Uh, was that always a song we were going to use? Did you kick around a bit of Public Enemy, a bit of this? or I actually was trying to get CCR in there um, and uh, I put it in. I loved it, but it didn't feel right. And it was um, the third track was Sabotage. Yeah. And, and once it got in there, I felt like it just never changed. It was the right feel. It was within the DNA of the, of the franchise. Um, and it was, it, it also calls back to, you know, Kirk's childhood and it just, uh, it was a perfect match. Lots of beats and shouting. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also exciting because I had heard that you can't get Beastie Boy tracks, you know? And, uh, I was like, how did JJ get it for the first one? So I was just excited to be even be able to, you know, use it. Are they, are they Star Trek fans? I didn't get to meet with them, but I had heard that they're very, you know, obviously they're, you know, it's their music and, and, and they're very selective in who they go to business with. I mean, when you were sort of, I guess, storyboarding that or even sort of doing an animatic for it, what, how do you put something like that together? Because you've got an amazing piece of music which sort of sets the blood pumping. You know, you've got a really great idea that the sound is going to destroy the swarm. But then you've not only got to visualize that in a dynamic way, but you need to match it up to the music just mm. so. I mean, was that, a, was that a tricky thing to put together? Very much so. Um, you know, Kelly, who cut the sequence, she did an amazing job. And I, I, Alex Vey, who you know, does the previs, he's the collaborator. I've been working with him ever since Tokyo Drift. Um, he was also instrumental in, in kind of getting everything together. And, uh, you know, I, I, I love action movies, even with big set pieces that are subjective, you know. So it, it took, that sequence actually took the longest and, and unlike a Fast and Furious movie where I have a second unit you know and I, we go shoot it I design it we go shoot it and then you by the time you go into post-production you're putting it together mm. um, with, with Star Trek it's a little different because I can tweak the shots until basically last night <laughs> you know <laughs> when they pry the film away from me so um, the sabotage sequence was one that that kind of um, I it was interesting because it was one of earlier ideas i had it in my head um but we actually kept playing with it uh throughout the whole process Mm. and if anything i suppose i mean people reference the motorbike scene but to me this almost felt like the most fast and furious the film got (laughs) you've got loud thumping music what does that mean i don't i don't know what that means i don't know what that means it invokes not a bad thing trust me it's not a bad thing it evokes that feel you know it's like you're in the car the stereo's blaring you're going at speed you're flying along it's just you know it has that well, it's one of those ideas that, uh, um, you know, I think when we were building the the script and the ideas, it was something I was very excited about because I think in this film, I really wanted to design it and, and bring this tactile feeling. I feel mm. like in sci-fi, everything's gotten very clean and it's very kind of, uh, uh, everything gyroed out. The shots are beautiful and they're kind of slick. And, and, and I really wanted to celebrate, you know, the, kind of the older sci-fi films that I grew up with you know it's funny because when I was in film school all I had was a tripod you know you have a tripod and you just shoot (laughs) and then you're so excited when you get a dolly track and a dolly you know and I kind of went back with this film so a lot of the camera moves I kind of went back to nodal moves and uh, it was just fun kind of kind of going and really being conscious of of, of trying to kind of bring that tactile nature back 
But it's interesting you say that because Star Trek, I think, has, has long become famous for that sort of aging battleship thing where it's two capital ships completely static, just yeah. exchanging fire, <laughs> not the most dynamic. And you've gone completely the other way with sort of high octane flying around. It's, it's you know... It's, it's, it's been done so thing. well. I'll tell you, I mean, when I first got on and I thought, oh man, you know, we'll, we'll do this, we'll do that. And then you watch the 50 years worth of, of Star Trek, you're like, wow, they've taken all their great angles, you know? <laughs> so how do we up that? Even just very subtle in framing the Enterprise. It's such a beautiful ship. Yeah. But it's been photographed for so long. So it was definitely um, a challenge. And there's obviously that sense that it's the 13th film, it's the 50th year, you know, no pressure <laughs> of any kind. <laughs> No, I mean, I, I think it, I, I definitely was very aware of, of the pressure of 50 years. But the thing that was very clear to me is that, you know, Star Trek is the unique property where it's thrived in different mediums, mm. you know. And um, I, I would like to think that this is one franchise where it should be, you should be able to be equally compelling in a space battle as, as you would with just two people in a room talking, you know. And that's something that's very, I think, very special. Mm. And you, you, you do something which has only been done twice before in the movies. You do a very ballsy thing. And essentially the first act, you do, as you mentioned, trash the Enterprise <laughs> in quite spectacular style. And one thing that did jump out to me is uh, I love the moment where Crawl just says, cut its throat. Because yeah. you look at that ship and you've always looked at it and thought, there's a structural flaw <laughs> just there, isn't I'm there? I'm glad you, brought, you bring that up because... I, I as a kid I watched it and I didn't realize they were explorer. I was eight years old. I didn't I didn't realize they were eight. It, you know, it was an explorer ship. You know, and I, I've always thought, damn, if you're gonna attack that ship, you take the neck, <laughs> right? And then it wasn't until I was a later I'm like, oh yeah, they're they're not really built to go fight people. I think it's 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 later on they they kind of had to put the you know the phasers and the photons and everything, but. Uh, but yeah, that was something I think that's been in me since I was eight. Yeah. So it was, <laughs> it, was, it was it was great to be able to kind of bring that to life. If you ever had like one of the Airfix models of the Enterprise, that was always where it broke. Always, <laughs> always where it broke. Very exciting. I used uh, to build it out of a uh, foil. Oh yeah, yeah. Because I didn't, I couldn't get the kits and stuff, so I just build it. And yeah, the neck would always be <laughs> droops, very wobbly. and then. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's a fantastic sequence, and to go that early in the film, it, it, it's very shocking. And I suppose also the way you do it, because the swarmers are something we've not seen in Star Trek before. That's a very, you know, it's a very new take. I mean, where did that concept come from? Rather than having a huge ship like we had in the previous yep. film, uh, lots of little ships. Well, you know, it's 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 a bit of kind of. I wanted to, you know, I think when we were building the the script. Uh, Simon, Doug, and I, we were very aware of, of you know, good sci-fi, good Star Trek. It has allegorical mm. uh, elements. And, and um, you know, so for me, I was when I was thinking about potentially doing the takedown, um, I wanted to kind of reflect a little bit of, of what's happening in our present day world where, you know, the big battleships and, and stuff that's been built for war, that they're around, but, you know, unfortunately, like the tactics have really shifted too. Yeah, so it's sort of a, a sort of mini space insurgency, yeah, with the little ships. Yeah, it's I mean it's a very striking thing, but it it must be quite difficult to practically render that because I mean if you're doing a swarm, it's like, how many ships are too many? How many ships are too few? How do you <laughs> decide? Well, it was, in, in, it was interesting because I had Peter Chang, the uh, visual effects supervisor, unbelievable to work with. I mean, just the hardest working. Just a great guy, and we would do renderings, and I would have ideas, and I thought, okay, let's do two thousand, 
let's do four thousand. And we we kind of play around with it. And I got you know I think in the third act we ended up with I think two hundred fifty thousand <laughs> shares <laughs> mining shifts. Um, again, that's what's so great. I feel like about this franchise about sci-fi. Um, you know, any idea I have, we don't just go around the court and shoot. We have to build. You know, we have to actually physically build it, or it has to be a visual effect. Yeah. And as we said, it's only really been done. I mean, it was blown up at the end of, well, during Search for Spock. It was mm-hmm. blown up in Generations. It's not something that happens regularly. I mean, are you, what kind of emotional response do you think that scene will elicit from people? Well, I mean, this, the Enterprise is such a big part of Star Trek, you know. And for me personally, it, it means, you know, if we were going to do it, there has to be a reason, you know. Yeah. But it also comes down to sometimes some, some small reasons. When we were looking at blueprints, I realized it was never an official... Blueprint. I can't believe that in 50 years nobody's put together an official kind of blueprint. The fans have done it, yeah. But there's no official blueprint of the Enterprise. So we, you know, part of the, you know, just the the length and just the scope of, of the sequence. Um, I also wanted to try to hopefully let the audience explore the ship. You know, be in places where you know and see where things are because we 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 never really got that sense. And I never knew where the turbo lift went, you know, so, so uh, you know, and, and I, I think in this sequence, you get a little bit of a tour yeah. uh, of the ship. Which is great, because someone out there on the internet knows where the turbo lift goes, because they've mapped all this stuff out, haven't they? In- I think it's a little bit like room 237, I think they mapped it out, I actually don't think it all matches, Yeah, you know? That's really funny. I mean, when, when, you, when you came in to do this, I mean, we're now, am I right in saying Simon was on board before you were on board? What, what was the timeline? Who came no, we, first? It, it was. It came swift and and, and very quickly. Um, it it was probably within days. Okay. I, I got called at the end of December. I had the meeting with JJ, and three days later, I went in and face to face meeting. We talked. I talked about themes and 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 things that I wanted to explore. Um, and then he. That's when he brought up that you know Simon and Doug, who, who didn't know each other at the time, they were going to come on and right. So mm. three people. <laughs> That didn't know each other. Then I flew to London uh, with Lindsay, um, one of the producers, and we sat down in a room with Simon and Doug. And it was probably the most painful <laughs> meeting because we didn't know each other. And I knew that the clock was ticking and it was going to be two and a half months before we started rolling film, which is insane. Um, and Simon, I think, comes from a very traditional way of making movies where you, you know, you write and then you keep working on it. And when you're ready, you go and shoot the movie, yeah. you know? Um, and then here I come in, I'm like, we're going to take an enterprise and the first act. Here's crawl. We're going to have this. And I'm pitching all these crazy ideas. Um, it's funny because looking back now, I actually have fond memories, even though it was very painful. It was a painful way of getting to know each other because yeah. we were all under intense uh, stress, you know? And, uh, but I have to say there were a couple ideas we ended up, evolving into this movie that I think actually could work really well for future movies. Interesting. Like, such as? Well, you know, Yorktown was not... um, I had this other idea where uh, they were going to explore this planetoid system, and instead of money as a currency, gravity was going to be the currency. That was the the original idea. And kind of the more we developed it, uh, the more I felt like I wanted better sense of exploration and mm-hmm. how far the Federation has pushed out. And so at a certain point, it just kind of became Yorktown. And, and uh, of course, you know, in the design of it, I wanted it to be an inverse globe where you, you, know, you can have millions of, of, of souls kind of living there. 
with that design, I mean, it, it felt part Inception, part kind of like a ring world, part Halo. You yeah. know, what, what was? Were there lots of factors contributing to the the look and feel of, of Yorktown? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that was. I wanted to get a sense that you know, as you go as you go further out. Uh, certain things that we take for granted now becomes a big deal. You know, obviously, if you're going to build some space station, real estate is is at a premium. Yeah. You know, so you're going to try to do whatever you can to jam as many, you know, individuals in there. And you're also trying to create an aesthetic where it's just, you don't feel crammed. And so, uh, you know, worked with Tom Sanders, who was amazing. He came on and, you know, we in a very short amount of time, we would throw ideas around. Um, but I also kind of felt like I knew where it was going to end uh, mm. at the very, you know. So that helped in kind of designing the look of Yorktown. Because you had loads of fun with the gravity towards the end. That was yeah, I get, I get accused for stuff. pushing pushing uh, physics in those fast movies. And here I'm it's like, Star Trek. it's okay. We can do this. We can't push physics in, in Star Trek. And I would like to say, uh, uh, I would like to shake your hand for both you and Simon and Doug uh, for not defeating the swarm by somehow venting plasma from the nacelles and igniting it or sending a beam from the main deflector or one of the other classic Star Trek, you know. Beastie Boys, I think I'm confident in saying, has never been done before Good. in Star Trek. So props to you, sir. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I mean, when you first talked about this, I mean, you, you said, Simon, I want to blow up the Enterprise, you know. Uh, was he, were he and Doug quite like, yeah, okay, no, that, that's fine. No, or was no. it just like, that's for me? I yeah, it was it was actually pretty. Um, I'm used to kind of because I come from the indie world, so by any means necessary. I think, you know, when I was doing the fast movies, if nothing's moving, I'm just gonna keep moving. You know, and that that's that's the way I work. I don't like once I sign up, I don't I don't sit. I like to keep pushing every second. You know, and I know they got thrown in situation, and you know, I'm just throwing all these ideas at them, and they were still processing. You know, and I. I found Simon to be super passionate, and mm-hmm. so Doug, and uh, they are also so respectful of the process. You know, I think a lot of times I can say, um, "Okay, well, let's go work on this. This is the overall structure. Let's work on the, you know, let's work on the character stuff. Let me, you know, go and work on the action. We're going to just get this thing done." And they had so much pride in their work. You know, um, they didn't. They said, "No, absolutely not. Like we're going to build all this together." Which I, it was so, it was so amazing to, you know, even under duress, that they wanted to make sure every word we worked on together, you know, and so that, that meant a lot. I've never had that process in my life, and I just love that, that passion and that, that just that love, you know. And Simon, I mean, I have a deep relationship with Star Trek. Um, I grew up watching it with my family. They were part of my family, but I, it was from eight to eighteen. It was the original series, so mm-hmm. I kind of. I feel like I get Star Trek on the essence level. I mean, I don't know. I don't know the names of every episode. I don't know every character, but Simon does, you know. And 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 Doug's his passion is also on another level. So it became a really cool kind of combination of work, and so that sometimes we can check each other if it's becoming too myopic. We can kind of help each other out. Mm-hmm. Sometimes if we're kind of going not too sciency tonally or whatever, we we're always there for each other, and it was great because Simon. He was finishing up Mission Impossible, and I'm in L.A. with Doug. So, you know, when we're not meeting up in the same room, like, it actually worked out really well. We would write stuff, have ideas, send it off, go to sleep, get up, and Simon's got all the stuff, and then he would do the same. And it was a, it was a really interesting, like, 24-hour global creation, you know? <laughs> kind of helpful if you're on a schedule. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think we've, we've... This is a record. I think a film of this size, to, to go from nothing... 
and then having an idea and then going to production two or two and a half months it's mm. never been done before something that stuck uh, out to me about this film is it felt very much like its own film i think if and i'm a huge respecter of, of jj's as a filmmaker and his his two films i enjoyed into darkness as, as it happens quite a lot but one of the things I got criticized for was feeling a bit like star trek karaoke do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? it felt like something that tried to hit the star trek touchstones but maybe didn't grasp the essence of what trek was this almost feels like again without marginalizing it it felt almost like the anti that it felt like it it took the essence of star trek in its purest form which is those iconic characters stripped away everything that makes them what you think they are and presents them completely unfiltered. Mm. I mean, was that the essence of where you were going with this, trying to strip it all back and start again? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it started off with this idea, like you said, of, of trying to capture the essence. And the essence, you know, I think, we're, you know, when I was talking about deconstructing Star Trek or the Federation or this, these ideas that's been with us for 50 years, but I, I didn't know what it meant. I knew that there was no money. I knew that there was, San Francisco looked really clean, you know, <laughs> but I, I wanted to at least explore that, you know. Um, but but the essence of Trek um, is about the characters, about mm-hmm. the sense of exploration, and obviously the, the, the kind of security blanket is the Enterprise. And so this idea of kind of ripping the Enterprise apart and setting off all these characters, you know, off, you know, to their own journeys, and hopefully they can reconnect. Um, that that was to me was very important, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you know these are also the characters where. For me, because I saw in rerun, night after night, you know, they have these great obstacles, great challenges. And, uh, but after you see the reruns, because, you know, there's only how many episodes? Uh, well, three only, seasons. Three it, seasons. So, yeah, yeah. And so by, by a year, you're probably seeing the episode three times, yeah. right? And uh, after a while, you know, you start thinking, well, what does Sulu and Chekhov do when they leave the bridge? Do they <laughs> hate each other? Do they hang out? And so I think in this film, some of the joys at making it is to create these interactions between these characters, you know, see a little bit of the family life, just this, to be able to do all those things. And I think that is, you know, and having Simon who really, not only is he a Star Trek fan, but he also knows the cast so well, you know, so, so to, for Simon and Doug to be able to really capture the voice, you know, and then for this amazing cast to come on and then bring it to life, you know, that was so important. But at the same time, I think part of the essence of Trek is to really f- convey this sense of exploration, of discovery. Mm-hmm. Because I remember as a kid, like, I didn't know was gonna, who they're going to run into the next night. you know. And so I think, it, it, I, for me, I felt like to do a Trek movie right, it is to embrace what's, what's come before. But the, the mission statement is to be bold and really push forward and hopefully take you t- into new worlds, new species and new obstacles. Because that was the point of the five-year mission, wasn't it? It was the, It's all very well hanging around sort of like the solar system and the Klingons and Romulans, but what's fun is when they encounter the unknown. Yep. Uh, and is that why you thought, you know, we'll, be, we'll do this, it's a five-year mission, we'll start in year three, so they've already been out there for three years. Who knows how far they are from Federation space? Yeah, and it's interesting because I thought, I thought it was my idea. I was, I was really proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> we definitely wanted to go, you know, middle of the, of the mission, of the five-year mission, but I realized actually, you know, I was, I mean, I know I was heavily influenced by the original pilot, you know, the, the first scene where Pine is talking to the doctor. Um, I, I, that episode had really stuck with me because, I mean, even as a kid, I didn't really, I didn't understand the episode at all because Captain Kirk was in, in it, yeah. <laughs> you know, and then you realize, oh, it's another captain. And then, you know, so my level of engagement would kind of evolve with, with multiple viewings, yeah. you know. 
And that always kind of struck with me when he was talking about this idea, this existential idea of, of exploration is all great, but what does it really mean? And was there, there was talk. I mean, did you, Simon said he didn't read Roberto Orsi's script because he didn't want to, to, did you read it at all? Were you exposed no, to it? It was a, it was a very conscious effort um, when I came on. Um, and I think it was done the right way. I think JJ and Lindsay and every bad robot, um, it was a restart yeah. and they didn't want us to touch it. I didn't ask uh, to read it, um, but I, and I don't know what came before me, you know, um, but it did, it did feel like just logistically, um, it was something, something happened. I don't know what happened, but I, I had enough on my plate, you yeah. know, to again, two and a half months to get into production. And I mean, you said you're an original series guy. I mean, was that very much the franchise that you grew up with? Was it that more than, say, Next Generation and then Deep Space Nine, Voyager, whatever? Yeah, I mean, it was very special because, you know, my parents had this little fish and chips restaurant and they would close at nine, you know, and then we'd have family dinner at 10. And Star Trek came on at 11 p.m. on Channel 13, you know, and so my brothers and I, we want to hang out with, you know, our parents, so we talk our way into kind of hanging out with them. So from 8 to 18... We just kept watching the same episodes mm. over and over again, and it was cool, you know. Um, but that was the level of, of, of connection for me. And then when I went off to college, that's when Next Generation, everything came on. And I remember watching it and thinking, wow, how did they get this done week by week? It's amazing writing, and it's great. And, but I, by then, I was in college. I was probably partying and uh, <laughs> chasing girls and stuff, yeah. so... Not so concerned with warp core configurations as, <laughs> as you once were. Um, but to get into the, the, the nitty-gritty of the main sort of MacGuffin of the film, is it the Abranath, which is this, this sort of ancient weapon that they've come to? I mean, what kind of level of detail did you go into when you were discussing it? Did you think, well, how does this work? Where did it come yep. from? What does it do? It's amazing sometimes when you think you have two and a half months to go from an idea to start a production. You think you could be by a bit more efficient but for us i mean but i think we had a almost 170 page script and because of all the production logistical kind of challenges i only had 76 days to shoot this whole movie so you know it, i there's chunks and chunks and i think at the end officially we had like 140 this that schedule is insane i, I had to go into indie mode like that motorcycle sequence i shot in a day and a half you know, I, I'm sending insert units out just to shoot, you know, so I'm, I'm using every trick I can just to fill in, just to make the sequence work. Um, but we did talk a lot. Like for me, there was a pre-prologue uh, that was going to explain the Abernath um, with all the Atomidians. I actually had a huge sequence that I had a lift um, with, uh, with the Swarm Soldiers. And it was, you know, there was going to be a Marauder City and stuff. Uh, but it was, it, it definitely, it was one of those things where, you know, I, I, I get excited because any, any character we have, um, I, they're not just character, you know, they live in that universe, mm. you know? And I think, again, Simon equally with Doug, um, we don't just let it go, you know? And we really like talking about, you know, where they came from, what's their relationship, you know, with the planet. And the whole Abernath, you know, there was two parts and it got ejected into space to separate. I mean, that, I actually, to this day, I still really wanted to do the pre-prologue because that would set everything up, you know. Um, but I think ultimately it was just, it, it didn't make sense to do it. Um, but it's still in my head, 
You know, so we did we did a lot of talk and 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 even a lot of writing mm. for those sequences. Were there any key sequences that you did shoot, but you ended up having to literally cut out that we might see down the line? No, not really. I mean, we we were very uh, efficient surgical. Yeah. Um, you know, there are a couple of moments with Spock and Bones um, that I ended up taking up, but it was very slight. You know, and and it's again. You know, everything you see in the film pretty much is what we shot. Mm. You know, it was a really tight schedule, and, and uh, it, it became a. It became. I think the the challenge became actually our friend at the end of the day because you had to decide. There, you didn't have extra days to say, "Oh, let's shoot this or that." And I like that because then it, it it really forces you to 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 even hone a point of view. You know, mm. um, it, it was it it got a little tough. Just because, it, again, the logistics of it was very hard to support what we want creatively. But I think instead of kind of complaining about it, I just was a great group of people and we just all embraced it. And I, I just felt like we made the biggest budget indie movie of all time, you know? <laughs> That's fantastic. I should point out at this stage, this is radio so no one can see, but Justin is in fact wearing a Mako t-shirt. <laughs> Which is quite awesome and one of the nerdiest things that's ever been worn in this podcast ah, booth. So congratulations for that. Uh, a USS Franklin Mako t-shirt, no uh, less. I named it after uh, after my dad. Very good. Oh, also, isn't there, is there a Franklin in Star Trek? Oh, I don't know. I know the Yorktown was the original yep, name for the Enterprise. The original. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the Makos were an interesting one. So now, and I think I'm right in saying, we've only seen those before in the Enterprise series. Yep. Yeah. Um, and there are a couple of references. I mean, you referenced the Zindi at one point, mm-hmm. also from Enterprise. And the look of the Franklin has that real uh, NX-01 Enterprise yep. feel to it. It's unusual because there's not a lot of love for Enterprise as a series. But it's such an interesting period. Yeah. You know, and I... I I like to think that, you know, if if the Vulcans were flying today by Earth and someone, you know, <laughs> warped out and they come down and say, Hey, we want to share the technology with you, there's gonna be it'd be a big big fucking group of people saying no fucking way, right? Like that, that was one of the things we talked about and it was not just everybody saying, Oh, peace, great. I, I know us as people yeah. and I think that was something that I wanted to make sure that we explored. Um, and I think having Edison uh, be of that era was mm. very important. Because Crawl's a fantastic idea, because obviously right up until the end, until you realize that he is Balthazar Edison, you know, a former Starfleet captain from way back in Archer's era. Yeah. You know, it kind of makes sense of it all, that he is, as you say, he's anti the unification. I mean, what? how would you sum up his politics? Was it more he believed in, I mean... Obviously, we're recording this in the UK. It's kind of appropriate at this particular point in time. But. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, when we were talking about Crowd, you know, and I, I remember I jumped on the phone with Idris pretty early on. Um, I talked about how I didn't want him just to be a baddie. You know, I, I wanted him had to have a very valid philosophy and point of view. And it has to be very personal, yeah. you know. Um, and part of that was the challenge everything that we've known about the Federation, you know, uh, what is the price for utopia? You know, um, what is the price for that world that we've, we've known for 50 years? And, you know, for him to be kind of living in the era he came with, um, and this idea ultimately that, you know, he just felt phased out, you know, and his point of view was now seen as, as something that is not necessary anymore. And and I wanted to use that to fuel him. And he's sitting around for 150 years, uh, you know, figuring out like and really having that philosophy 
now become, you know, part of his being, part of his life. Uh, and I felt like that was important to challenge, you know, uh, our characters and the Federation's ideals. Because mm, it's that idea that there's no place for soldiers during peacetime. You know, what, yeah. you've created these weapons, what do you then do with them? Yeah. Um, and also he has the, the philosophy of, you know, uh, you know, as human beings, we need to keep evolving. So what happens when you have peace? I mean, it is kind of funny thinking about it, right? Like, I mean, I want peace. I want all of us to have peace. But what does that mean? Like, you know, do we as a species, what happens? You know, and... Um, so I, we talked a lot. I remember just getting on the phone with him for two hours and just talking and he just kept going and it was, it was a great conversation. And a lot of the characters, I think I kind of set the overall, um, outline, but man, he just kind of jumped in and we just kept talking. I remember his two year old is, is crying in the back and we just kept talking <laughs> for two hours. And, uh, I'm just thinking, oh man, I hope he does this because this is a great conversation, you know? And at the very end of the, uh, talk he said uh, he pauses and he said it's gonna be four hours of makeup every day isn't it <laughs> and i was like ah oh, shit <laughs> but he he really sucked it up and and i'm so glad that yeah. he's part of it and the idea is that edison's uh been stranded on this planet now my understanding is he discovered the kind of the drone army there so presumably abandoned from an ancient civilization or yeah it, it, it were, we had a, a, a couple of different iterations um and ultimately i think you know, I, we had to alter a little bit of the background of the drones and the technology. Mm. Um, there was, I think originally there was a bit more of, you know, he almost became more of a pirate. And he, he was just weaponizing anything you could think of, you know. Um, but I think as it evolved, it became more appropriate that, you know, it, it, there was a drone workforce that was there mining. Mm. And he kind of got in there. There was some technology of just prolonging life. And, and so... A lot of that, you know, I hope one day um, we'll get to explore that even more because we, we talked about it a lot and just you only get like a glimpse of it, you know, with his captain's log. And um, but it was I, I, I had such a good time with Doug and Simon just kind of going back and forth and building this whole narrative that basically was only on screen for, you know, 30 seconds. Yeah. So um, it's definitely... It's definitely something with them. I mean, I hope, I hope one day we get to bring it to life. And the way the, the sort of regeneration works, he takes on kind of the physical attributes of whoever he's draining the life force from. It's, I think it's, it's this idea of evolution, but you know, I think that was the impetus for, for the design and how it, 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 it's a machine that, that actually brings that to life, you know? And, and so um, that's something that, in the design of his philosophy, I, I wanted to have a a a, uh, a vessel that was going to be like it was going to bring it out literally. So yeah. I, I thought that was appropriate. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of references as we mentioned to, to other things, whether it be Zindi or whatnot. And uh, I believe at, at one point, not only do they mention a giant green space hand, but we also <laughs> see it in the end credits. <laughs> now I'm going to throw my Star Trek credentials on the line and say that's a reference to Who Mourns for Adonai from yeah. season two <laughs> of the original series. <laughs> That was, I gotta say, that was Simon because I was like, oh man, when I read it, I just laughed because I, you know, a lot of this um, Star Trek, it's, I don't, it's not in my head, but it's in me somewhere, you know, and I'll give you an example. Um, Simon is hilarious. Sometimes he'll he'll send pictures, just goofy pictures. Um, And one day I get a picture from him and it's him with the Cobra Maneuver alien, 
Okay. And I, I just, I thought it was funny. And they're, they're reading a Star Trek book. So he just sends <laughs> a goofy picture. And it's awesome. And so I get the, I get the picture and uh, I was thinking, and we were actually writing a captain's address to the crew. And I thought, hey, I think there's a really cool captain's address that Kirk does in that episode. And so I, I, I email Simon and Doug and we watch it and we're like, holy shit, this is awesome. So some of that DNA is into, we, we wrote it into our captain's address. But I realized, I don't think I've seen that episode since I was probably 18 or 17, <laughs> but it was in there. And somehow that goofy picture got that on. Oh, it was just such a great feeling, you know? Yeah, it does. I think if you become obsessed with Star Trek, it does soon starts to infiltrate your brain in a way. <laughs> and I do it all the time. Um, it's like when we saw the picture at the end when, uh, when, when he puts up, and it's the original Enterprise crew. And I thought, isn't that a publicity still from, I want to say, Star Trek Five? <laughs> Be honest, is it? Is it? <laughs> I try not to think about it. I was just looking at all these pictures and, and uh, that was the closest one that felt like somebody took it, you know, with, with, and there were other ones with like better lighting, but it just felt too glossy. So I was, yeah. I'm always very conscious of that. And I think at the end of the day, we even like color timed it. So it felt like it was more of a fluorescent, you yeah. know, it, it was just more <laughs> a group of friends taking a picture. Oh, it's a nice one because it's quite, I guess, emotionally neutral. You know, they're all yeah. quite, you know, serious looking. It, it has the right emotional tone to it. Yeah. That was a lovely sequence. I thought, especially the um, where you have the toast and it's two absent friends and the camera sort of hangs very briefly on Anton. And mm -hmm. I wondered, was that something that you tweaked afterwards? Yeah. I mean, it was, um, you know, I'm, it's still very raw, mm -hmm. you know, right now. And uh, it, it, it was something that, you know, when it happened, I mean, I, I, I personally, I, I feel fortunate because I wasn't alone. I had a great group of people around me as we were trying to finish the movie, we were two weeks from finishing and we were going around the clock and, um, you know, uh, kind of, we went back into it and I was just kind of revisiting a lot, a lot of the footage. And when I saw that, I, I just felt like, um, it was, it, it, it was appropriate. And, yeah. uh, um, you know, we, we all got together and just kind of, it, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a good send off and goodbye, you know, f at least the people, that you know, we we we've been there, kind of just editing for months, and um, it, it was kind of the process that we had to go through. Mm. And you deal also very well with the since obviously uh, Leonard Nimoy has passed since he last appeared in the Star Trek film, and I thought that was dealt with very uh, very compassionately as well, where you see Spock being given the news and that it informs his decisions as well, uh, because he and Kirk are both having a kind of I guess a uh, three years into the mission, they're both having a slight wobble. Yeah, uh, his from learned that mm -hmm. his future self is dead and Kirk is looking at the Vice Admiralty what was your thinking in terms of why Kirk at that point at the beginning of the film is looking to leave the Enterprise you know it, when I was watching you know the other uh, uh, Into the Darkness you know I think sequels a lot of time is such a challenge right yeah. because it's not something that's given a sequel is earned it's, it only exists because it's a potentially good business you know uh, situation but then creatively, you're like, okay, we're going to be able to go another round. Um, but let's look at what came before. And you're like, wait, he just died for his crew? <laughs> he like literally died for his crew? So what happens after that? And so yeah. I think it came out of that. Um, what happens when you're the hero? What happens when you've done everything more than anybody can ever do? Um, and now you're, you know, 966 days in space. Well, how, what's in your head? Mm. 
Oh, it was an interesting... It's hard to see Kirk wanting to be uh, an admiral because obviously if we look at the alternate timeline, he does that and doesn't enjoy it so much. Yeah. So it's a, a learning a learning curve there. Um, one thing we do get from, from Kirk here, I think, uh, which is perhaps something that's been lacking up until now is more of an emphasis on the Holy Trinity. You know, it's Kirk, it's Bones, and it's Spock. And I think Kirk and Spock have had a lot of time together mm-hmm. in the previous two films, but I think Spock and McCoy especially have seemed to have only past each other. It was lovely to see them get to spend that time because that's such a great relationship. That, that was definitely when we were talking about, you know, uh, splitting up the group. I, I, I got so excited when we when I realized we could get Spock and Bones together because they've always been kind of like, even the way it's framed in Star Trek, one's one over one's shoulder, the other one's in the other shoulder. Yeah. And to, to kind of take Kirk out of the equation, have them have to interact. Um, Again, it's it's kind of the the Star Trek geek in me, you know, um, to to be able to see these characters, kind of what they would be like in certain situations, and definitely, you know, I growing up, Bones was my favorite character. I mean, he's like the uh, the uncle I always wanted, you know, and so to really have him and, and and Carl, who is a huge fan and loves McCoy, and to be able to kind of sit there, um, even though the scripts are done and we're about to shoot. You know, he just never gives in, and we just keep building them, building them. Uh, and and together with Zach, those scenes were so much fun to shoot. Yeah. And Carl, I mean, famously, I mean, he's even said he didn't have a great deal to do in the previous film. So it was great to see that address and to have so much of the comedy as well. Comedy, and also, you know, I, Carl, I think, made a conscious choice to really honor um, Bones. And, and, and out of all the characters, he's probably tried to, to, to even sound like you know, DeForest Kelly, yeah. yeah. And, um, but I, what I really appreciated, at least this round, was that, that, that was, you know, we were able to kind of explore a lot more, you know, how he sounds, it was just a part of McCoy. And the fact that we get to see other, you know, other tones from him, for him to explore the subtleties and other subtext, um, it, it was great to, those days, you know, and it was crazy too, because there were a couple of days where, um, we had this huge quarry. You know, it's the biggest set I've ever been a part of. And uh, it's, of course, it's Canada and started raining like crazy. So we had this huge set. And I'm in this little, you know, temple with with Carl and Zach. And, every, you know, everybody's in the water and it's flooding. And they just brought their A game. And then really kind of just, um, you know, I appreciate that. I appreciate the fact that we're able to, you know, sometimes in the in the craziest condition, we were able to find something kind of that intimate, you know, um, out of all this logistical nightmare. I mean, you had a great time working with them, but you've known John Cho for quite some time, haven't you? And he recently, before the film obviously came out, he talked about how in this iteration Sulu was going to be gay, and there was a lot of talk about that. A lot of people were very excited. Were you surprised that it became such a talking point? You know, there was a lot of thought that got put into it. Um, We talked about it a lot. I talked to... Everybody, I talked to George, I talked to everybody, um, just to get context, yeah. you know? Um, and after all the conversations, I even went back and kind of researched um, Sulu, you know? And ultimately, I felt like it was the right choice to make. Um, I, And also the way we were going to handle it, I thought, was to have it in the film, but it, to make it a non-issue. Yeah, you know, I think that was that, that's the way to treat... You know, I wanted... I wanted to, I think the mandate for me was to be able to be with these characters and just get a slice of life with them yeah. that we hadn't seen in the last 50 years. That's it. 
And so the, he happens to have a husband and a little girl. That's, that's part of his life. Silent, know? one shot, yeah. then walking and away. Yeah, Beautiful. that's it. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I, unfortunately, I mean, we're still in a time where people, when that happens, still kind of a big deal. Um, but I, I don't think it is. And I don't think, you know, I'm glad, you know, I, I didn't want to treat it like a big deal. Mm. Um, but it set off some interesting discourse. Um, but at, at the end of the day, I'm really, really proud of, uh, you know, not just that, but just all the other moments with these characters that I've always wanted to be with them. Yeah. There's, a, there's an awful lot of that in there. And, and, and also, Greg Grunberg. <laughs> and I find it interesting that JJ fantastically failed to get Greg in either of the last two, although he did do a voiceover he, in the first was, one. Was he? he did the voice. He was Kirk's dad on voiceover in the you know car what? I, at the beginning. I thought I saw him on the bridge, though. Did you? He's not credited on the bridge. I have. You may have seen him and I didn't. I got to go find but it. But I was I just like, fair it. play to you for getting him in there. <laughs> and putting him in charge of the Yorktown, essentially. So... <laughs> Yeah, it was funny because we, we, you know, I, I, I'm a big Greg Grumber fan, but then um, I kept getting calls saying, what's Greg Grumberg doing? And I was like, what do you mean, what's Greg Grumberg doing? <laughs> and finally I'm like, okay, he's going to be uh, in charge of Yorktown. And, and Greg comes in and we're talking. He's like, hey, I want to be Finnegan. I want to be Finnegan. <laughs> so like, I'm like, okay. So we, I had to look up Finnegan and it's, it's great. It ended up just having this, uh, we had a really great day of fun. There's a lovely touch at the end of the film where they do the the monologue, the kind of space, the final frontier, yep. and you have each of the cast speaking a line. It, uh, wh- what was the thinking behind that? I think it's the first time that's been yeah, done. Yeah, and I, you know, it, it became very clear to me um, because Star Trek, you know, I know it's Kirk and, and Spock, and but to me, Star Trek is a family, you know? And it was so important to me because, you know, my family immigrated to the States when I was eight. You know, so it was just me, my parents, and my brothers. Um, and I think it's through Star Trek that I learned, oh, family is not doesn't have to be just by blood. Mm. You know, family is about a group of individuals, different backgrounds, getting together and going through this shared experience. And that was that was very influential for me. And I know a lot of times when I when I was making the Fast franchise, everybody talked about family, and I thought, oh, okay, cool. But it wasn't until doing Star Trek that I realized, oh, that was heavily influenced by. The original series. So um, it just felt appropriate. At 50th anniversary, it, it really is about this crew. Mm. And to be able to see the new Enterprise, um, I felt like we had to hear everybody, you know. And, and, and everybody did, did an amazing job. And I just felt like it was the right way to kind of sum everything up. And it had a, a real sense of finality to it, a sense of closure. I mean, I, I think the original contracts were for three films. I mean, is it possibly that this is where it's ending or is... You see it's now continuing. Wow. I mean, I, I hope it continues. Um, you know, again, like I said before, I, I don't think sequels are given, you know. Yeah. It's earned. And so, and, and it's something that, as a filmmaker, I, I would never take lightly, you know. But uh, I, I really do think that, you know, the goal is to embrace what I love, the essence of Star Trek, and hopefully contribute to the, its legacy. And hopefully this film will be able to help propel it for another 50 years, mm. you know? So that, that was the ultimate goal. Fantastic. And if I can ask you one last question, which is not Star Trek related, it's uh, Lone Wolf and Cub. Is this something you're still working on? Yes, yes. Um, been working on it for a while. Um, and uh, yeah, I've been, I've been, I've 
for the last year and a half, I've been on this Star Trek detour. You know, I, I, I wasn't even planning on, I never thought I'd make a Star Trek movie until I got the call from JJ. I was ready to go make my little LA riots movie. <laughs> and that, that's actually been pretty painful because I had to give that up. Yeah. Um, but it's been the greatest detour of my career. Um, and I am excited. Lone Wolf and Cub is one of many projects um, that I'm, in the next two weeks when we're done with all the press, I can't wait <laughs> to, to go back and revisit. And I think, you know, the cool thing about it is that I, at, filmmaking has gone global, mm. you know, and there's many ways to make a movie. And I think Hollywood has to evolve and it has to go global. So I think this is the best time to make a movie like Lone Wolf and Cub and to be able to really embrace the spirit and the essence of what makes it great, you know, um, because if this is five, ten years ago, they're going to want Keanu Reeves to play the dad, you know, yeah, you know which, um, but now I, I, I feel like you, this is the time to push and let's really kind of just try to go out and make good movies. Yeah, because it's an astonishing comic. It really is. Yeah, I love it. Well, Justin, thank you very much for joining us on the Empire Podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by the star and co-writer of Star Trek Beyond, Simon Pegg. How are you, sir? I'm very well. Nice to be back. Excellent. Uh, good to have you here. Um, uh, I, I know that I'm meant to have a present for you every time you appear in the podcast, and I have brought nothing. But, but I, to be honest, accept. you'd only you only know that because I reminded you yeah. when we did the first take of this, which because went wrong because you forgot to switch on I the machine. Didn't. Well, no, I switched so what on you're the machine. Doing is you're altering canon. Chris, you're messing with canon, and you shouldn't do that. But look who's talking. What's happening? Uh, yeah, this is true. This is true. But luckily, we didn't get 25 minutes into the interview before I realized I hadn't pressed the fucking record button. No. And here we are. Uh, so I'm going to ask you the same question I asked you five minutes ago, which yeah. was when you sat down to write your first draft of the screenplay, did you write Interior, Enterprise, Scotty enters a bridge to find a pile of corpses, Scotty, oh no, everyone is dead. Now I'm a captain, in it. Well, I wish, I only wish I could do a Scottish accent. You should, I mean, you're a Celt, for God's sake. You should at least have some kind of innate connection to the Scots. I can genuinely do a Scottish accent. I was Oh, you were doing, it was like a pretendy one. For comedic purposes. Got it. Okay. And inferring, we all infer from that that my accent is, of course, terrible. No, of course Uh, not. Right, that's it. I'm down. I'm out. <laughs> no, you know what? It was it was a weird one because you obviously do you're sensitive when you're writing your own character that you might be giving yourself too much or too little. But yeah. having Doug there, my co-writer Doug Jung, who who is brilliant and and was you know such an amazing person to have on this adventure that we had, and I really want to make sure everyone knows how much Doug contributed to it because I know I'll get a lot of the focus because I'm on the screen as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was great. For, for I'd always defer to Doug and say, "Do you think it's it's okay to have Scotty here, or maybe we shouldn't have Scotty here?" And and it we, and also the film is is an ensemble piece. It's about all the crew in in various you know uh, states of separation. So mm-hmm. um, it was kind of easy to modulate who had what screen time. Uh, did you have a, a sort of flipboard? Did you have charts of people's arcs? How did how did you do it? How did you we had it? an amazing. There's a room, a bad robot in uh, LA. There's a there's a room which is a screening room, but there's this sort of um, there there are whiteboards that pop out all around the room. So if if you're in there to write, you push all the chairs back, and all these whiteboards come up, and we filled every single whiteboard around the room, including one with a picture of a penis shaped. Federation ship called the USS Johnson, which I fought for until the bitter end. It never made it into the previs, let alone the actual film. But um, yeah, no, we did. We we had so much so much detail. I've got photographs. So I'll show you them one day of those of my Johnson of my Johnson. Uh, it was a it was a 
about trying to get all the ideas out of our minds and onto some kind of writing surface and yeah. then honing those ideas into a screenplay in a short space of time. When you were working on the antagonist for this, you've got Crawl. Yeah. He's trying to undermine the unity of the Federation and go it alone. Is he an extraterrestrial Nigel Farage? He is Brexit, <laughs> yes. He is the guy that doesn't think that working together with other territories is a good idea. I can't believe how apposite this film has yeah. become. Um, yeah, it was, you know, we, we, we wanted to question the Federation ethic and, and have it, you know, because the flip side of the Federation is the Borg, of course, which is, a, which is a next-gen kind of idea. But nevertheless, you know, we wanted to s- someone to say, well, maybe the Federation is just like assimilating rather than actually including and, you know, mm. um, becoming part of a larger network. And, and Kral, for his own sort of reasons, um, decides that, you know, war makes heroes and not peace mm. and it should be rigid individualism and not unity. And that felt like a good thing to do at this point in Star Trek's history. If only to say, you're full of shit, Kral. <laughs> Farage stroke Kral. <laughs> but it, it, Star Trek kind of always does it, and it? it tries to reflect the sort of the spirit of the age. I think Justin was saying that, you know, instead of having a huge vessel, you have the swarms, they're almost like insurgents. It's yeah. sort of a parable for modern warfare. Absolutely. It's this kind of indefinable enemy, the kind of the, the hard to pin down. You know, where is it? How can I shoot it? That kind of thing. Uh, sort of escape all means of current combat. That's exactly what the swarm is. It's uh, it's an interference in, in, in a way that, you know, terrorism is in, in our society. Um, and science fiction is brilliant for that because it is a fantastic metaphorical tool. It's, it's our way of holding a mirror up to ourselves and sort of like extrapolating our own future and saying this is where we might go if this doesn't happen or this is where we go if this does happen, you know. And they, they tore up the Enterprise. I mean, did Justin say to you, right, Simon, I'd like to blow up the Enterprise. Yeah. Is this a problem? He did, and I said yes. <laughs> we Honestly, we had, uh, very early on in the, in the writing process, we had a, a stand-up row on the phone, like a proper shouty row with each other. Me saying no, and him saying yes. And I, I my argument was... You know, it's nothing, it's not like a new thing to do. It's, we've seen the Enterprise destroyed before. It happened in Search for Spock. It happened in Generations. Mm-hmm. It, you know, why do it? And I was being very protective of my ship, basically, because I felt like, let's not do that again. But the more I thought about it, and the more we talked about it, the more I realized that what Justin wanted to do was m- remove, and it hasn't happened in this timeline yet at all anyway, is remove the connective tissue that holds the crew together is to take away that physical thing which necessitates them being together and see if they stay together. And in a way, it's like a good way of of actually killing one of the crew without really killing one of the crew. Mm. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized what a brilliant move it was. And when I saw how he wanted to do it, uh, I was kind of like, all right, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) Cut its throat. Yes. Uh, what, it also allows you, <laughs> what it also allows you to do is to pair the crew up in different uh, interesting combinations. And one of the things I, I loved about this movie was the, the emphasis on uh, Bones and Spock Yeah, again. Uh, and, and very much, in many ways, the Holy Trinity as well. Kirk, Bones and Spock, or Spurt, Cock and Spurt Boners. And Cock. <laughs> Spurt, Cock and Boners. Yeah, the captains of the uh, USS Johnson. <laughs> Brilliant. It all comes back to the Johnson. <laughs> and uh, was that something that you wanted to do right from the beginning and to re- re-emphasize those relationships, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. It, I mean, I felt like, Doug and I both felt like the, the, the Kirk-Spock dynamic had been explored ex- extensively in the first two movies, maybe even a little bit prematurely, one might argue. You know, the, the events of The Wrath of Khan take place 
25 years after they first met you know they'd only just really met in 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 into darkness and you might say well would they really be that concerned about each other at that point in their relationship so we felt like there'd been a lot of exploring that dynamic why not mix it up a bit and and explore you know how the other characters are we like the idea of the youngest crewman being with the senior member of the the executive crew we love spock and bones being together because Mm. they are the the kind of devil angel on kirk's shoulders they're always really squabbling over kirk so take away again the connective tissue that that usually keeps them together Mm -hmm. and see what happens you know for scotty to kind of come across this young sort of technically impressive alien girl felt like a really fun idea because he's like an old fuddy-duddy and she's this super (laughs) cool young kid um and also just seeing Ahura and Sulu together was yeah. a nice idea as well, just because they rarely even speak to each other, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, at the end of the movie, uh, Scotty has his arm around uh, Jayla, so... Yes. Is that... Uh... In an avuncular way. Mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think Keenzer has got anything to worry about. <laughs> I think uh, that romance is, is well and truly set. Okay. Oh, we didn't tell you that bit? That's not in the film? <laughs> yeah, Keenzer and Scotty are an item. Oh, those deleted scenes are going to be so amazing. Um, can you talk a little bit more about Crawl and how you decided? Because he's very much, for me anyway, I feel he's a reaction to, to Khan, mm. who, or John Harrison, uh, who, who. You don't have to say that anymore. <laughs> who dominated that movie in many, many ways. Yeah. Um, and Crawl feels like a, he's a mystery from the, from, from the off. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and obviously, you reveal that mystery. I mean, how, how did you uh, come upon his backstory and how did you uh, decide what, what changed him, the transformation, how much to show, how much to hold back? Well, we wanted him to be enigmatic, of course. We also didn't want him to be just out for revenge because both Nero, really, and Khan are both kind of just pissed because they've been wronged whereas there is a degree of that with Kral but also he's he feels like something he you know had kept on the down low about his own sort of transition from where he began and where what he became and then what he became again mm. how much can I say about this because this is it's going out after the film this is spoiler it's going out after the film well you know obviously he he was brought up at the time of Mako, which was the you know the military assault command operation. It was a, it was a, it wasn't the Federation, mm. and and that's why he m- sacrificed his friends and went through all this this horror for the Federation. And then the mm. Federation seemingly kind of left him behind, even though it wasn't you know possible for the Federation to even find him. But to yeah. him, it was just like I fought for that, and th- that's what I get. You know, his kind of that 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 that. Um, um, consolidated his views about the Federation, about yeah. what unity is, and and the fact that you know it's struggle that makes people great, not not peace and contentment. And um, and we just love that idea that you know the, the the backstory of it was was much more complex, and we we had to find a way to tell the story very quickly that he kind of found this way to prolong his own life by basically genetically vampiring other species, you know, other other individuals, and had. Mutated himself into this great big creature mm. because of all the different DNA he'd taken, and the more human DNA he takes back, the more he becomes himself again. Mm. And we just love the idea of of the reveal being that they are not where no man has gone before; they are where somebody has very much been before. And <laughs> who knew it was that guy? You know, <laughs> it's Idris Elba. What's it's Idris Elba? <laughs> you mentioned the Makos briefly, and obviously there's a reference to the Zindi Wars in as yeah, well. Yeah. Enterprise doesn't get a lot of love. I thought that was a surprising move. No, it doesn't, and I feel like it's it's part of the Star Trek storyline, you know, and and I think Enterprise, I think it didn't do itself any favours with the theme music. I think the show was great. <laughs> I really enjoyed the show. It's been a long road. Yeah. 
it's just a long road but I feel like you know that's part of the fabric of Star Trek and it would it was nice to kind of embrace that too um, yeah we, we, we felt that was a and we also one of the great things that we discovered was that we had the, the, the logo for Mako it was a shark mm. we got these t-shirts these Franklin t-shirts with the Mako logo on and the, the shark's nose is essentially the, the Federation symbol and Very it's good. like we realized the Federation symbol comes from the nose of the Mako shark which you know it was like wow this is like canon that's just happened in front of our eyes uh, I remember noticing it on set one day and going Justin look this is where the symbol comes from it was fab that's genius I was, I was trying to be on nerd watch all the way through the film and I thought that's very hard so I, I got the reference to the giant green hand yeah. the, who mourns for Adonai which is season two yes, I'm yes. going to say uh, and then the captain's address which was it seemed like a Corbomite maneuver yeah, yeah homage yeah. And you've only seen it once. I've seen it once. There's no such this. thing as the unknown. That, that line is that... He, he says That's that, yeah, yeah, only the temple. And there was... Uh, uh, obviously, the Yorktown was the original name That's of the Enterprise. Right. And yeah. I wondered, what well, is, uh, is the Spock skip to the end? That felt like a space reference. <laughs> yes, it end. is. <laughs> I remember when Chris came to do that, he, he said something different. I went, Chris, just say skip to the end. And he said, well, I went, just do it. <laughs> I just wanted... Because of the, the reference to Star Trek in space, you know, the, the odd-numbered Star Trek movies yeah. shit, uh, yeah. which hopefully is not the case anymore, <laughs> uh, I, I really wanted to just, like, just for the old guard put that in and uh, Chris obligingly did a Tim Bisley for me <laughs> but what did, did we miss what, what yeah. was there that I missed what, what references god I'd have to kind of look we, there are lots of names I remember there were there, there was stuff in in the original cut when there were two crew members called Tomlinson and Martine who were mentioned who are the two uh, getting married yep. in um, the Balance of Terror I think is that one I can't remember <laughs> I can't remember um, but there's we, Doug and I would always go down and watch episodes of the of the show after a good day's writing and we'd often take notepads and just write names down and so whenever anyone would be mentioned it could be someone from the prime universe but their counterpart in the alternate universe so there's a load of stuff in it there's actually a big green hand in the closing I credits I saw that yeah, yeah. nice yeah, yeah, yeah. That was uh, that was fun doing that stuff, and you know, if if you've been with Star Trek a long time, there's stuff in there for you to kind of like. That's just for you, you know. That won't alienate anyone, but yeah. it will be nice for the for the faithful. <laughs> uh, but Balthasar uh, Edison, that's a completely new creation. Yeah, Balthasar Edison um, was um, initially he was. We were trying to figure out a name why he was called Kral, and there was a description that the, that the technology he uses. It's, it's called Kral. It means born. It means reborn. Okay. And that, that never got to be explained in the, in the, in the film. But um, initially he was called Crowley. And then, but then we, we, we decided to call him Balthazar Edison for some reason. Because <laughs> it just feel, it sounded like a different name. Well, it sounds like when you first hear it, it's a very heroic name. Yeah, it's that sort of... And also mm. we didn't want any kind of... We didn't want to... That's it. We remember, I remember we didn't want the audience to get it too soon. Mm. We, there are clues in there all the way through. In fact, you see Idris' face on the, behind me at one point on the screen. And if you, if you see it, you'll be like, what the fuck? <laughs> but uh, yeah, Balthazar Edison was a real sort of uh, red herring, really. But he was one of the, supposed to be one of the, seen as one of the heroes of the Federation, obviously. Yes. But then it all went to shit for him. Absolutely. And, uh, and of course, uh, Kroll is, uh, he's in search of the, the, the MacGuffin, the big weapon, the, the Abernath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, again, we've only seen it once. So. It's called the Abronath, but Abronath. They, everyone else called it Abernath. I'm like, Abronath. it's Abronath, for God's Abronath. sake. Say it right. I've invented an alien word. Say it right. <laughs> <laughs> and again, that's something that's, that's uh, from, created from whole cloth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the idea was that the uh, we, 
we, the, the MacGuffin at the beginning, of the, what seems to be a kind of trinket at the beginning of the film turns out to be the MacGuffin. It's like, you know, th- this thing had been ejected into space and found by a, uh, a disparate race and kept, they didn't know what it was. They thought it was part of a weapon and mm. it ended up that the end, it got on board the Enterprise and as soon as Spock logs it in that, at the beginning and it, that goes to Yorktown and Kral, mm. who's monitoring Yorktown, suddenly finds out where it is, which mm. is how it, that all starts. So, yeah, it, we, we kind of wanted to tie the 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 prologue into the main story of the into the main plot so it wasn't as if you know you have the little bond-esque yes indie-esque pre-adventure yeah and then you begin the main story we wanted there to be a connective tissue there so that the the teenax incident which was the first thing we wrote was the the tiny aliens which was almost like a gag when we first wrote it and then it became this great thing i love the fact that it became the classic sort of shatner-esque standoff with the you know standing in the room looking up um yeah, but we wanted to make sure that, that 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 it had a consequence, which which echoed through the rest of the movie. So, is it in essence is it, is that the rabbit's foot from MI three? <laughs> <laughs> it's every fucking MacGuffin. We're all saying about oh, it's the old spark, it's the old crap, whatever it's called. It's the fucking that square glowing thing in the uh, Avengers. Oh yeah, that one. Yeah, the Tesseract. It's something yeah. that does something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, how did you just decide what it does and why Crawl wanted it so badly? He, he already has. A kick-ass yeah, uh, fleet at his disposal. Yeah, absolutely. What what the what the Abranath does is it, it essentially uh, Abranath. Ab- the Abranath, the Abra- the whatever it's called. Uh, what it essentially was, it, it was a, a bioweapon which kind of ignites mm-hmm. the, when it when it moves, it ignites the air into a kind of bio-killing thing. So you can essentially, it's like a neutron bomb. You can clear oh, okay. an area with it. Yeah. So Kral didn't necessarily want to destroy Yorktown. He just wanted to clear it so he could use it, kind of thing. And it's this became, and he could also infect the rest of the Federation with this thing. So it was mm. like a, it was like an ultimate weapon that he could yeah. use to just lay waste to the Federation and use Yorktown as his sort of conduit toward doing that. So yeah, he has the swarm, of course, but um, and the swarm was bigger than I ever expected it to be when I see it in the movie, but. Um, it was more a kind of long game he was playing to yeah. have something as destructive as that. The whole idea was that, you know, when he landed on, on Altamid, he'd found essentially a mining colony and all these mining ships. That's what the swarm is. It's just sophisticated mining equipment, you know, mm. sort of. And all those soldiers were just drones who worked and he sort of turned them into an army and turned the, the swarm into a weapon. And what had happened was that that, that facility had been mining that substance and it had ended up wiping everybody out and just yeah. leaving this drone force. So there's all this great backstory to be explored in the, uh, in the novelization. <laughs> <laughs> but it's stuff that we had to kind of have the audience infer, really. Absolutely. I'm, I'm going to predict that most people will come out of this, uh, this film with one word uh, in their head, and that word will be sabotage. <laughs> uh, fuck yes. That's a hell of a sequence. <laughs> you know what? It was such a kind of... It was one of those moments when we were like, should we do this? I, I was One of the reasons I got pissed about that first trailer was because I felt like they blew that. You know, It was like, don't use that piece of music. That's our little funny secret weapon in the movie, you know. Yeah. And, I, and I was, I was kind of ticked off about it. And and yes, it was overly overly action packed. But really, it was the fact that they'd gone and picked one of the sort of like cherry moments in the movie and 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 blown it on the first trailer. But um, at the same time, you could argue that it replanted in people's yeah. minds Kirk's connection the with first, that, that well, song. Then, congratulations, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was, yeah, and that might have been a knee jerk reaction of mine because obviously sure. I was. That moment is, it was a risk, you know. We had we had this sort of. 
idea. The, it's the Ewoks against the Empire. It's, it's defeating <laughs> something technological with something very simple, with just a radio frequency, you know. And the fact that Jayla has this thing about old hip-hop, we just love the idea that she likes the beats and shouting, you know. And, and they decide to use kind of hip-hop to, to disorient the swarm and, and cause this chain reaction. And it... it, it it is it, to right up to the wire. We're like, is this going to work? Is this going to work? And then we saw what Justin did, and it was like, oh fuck yeah, yeah. this is great fun. You know? And Pine sells it so well as well. Yeah, it has a little yeah. glint in his eye. And also, yeah. it has a it has con- continuity to the because when he was a kid, he was listening right, to it yeah. on his dad's car. You know, so and and fair play to you. I was saying this to Justin that I think every single. Uh, person was probably expecting well they're going to vent the nacelles and they're going to ignite the gas and no one thought they're going to unleash the beastie boys <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah. that will do it they're going to use, i mean the key is that, that you know the point is that they they in they interrupt this signal with radio waves but they just do it with the beastie boys yeah. <laughs> which is a good way to do it you know and you know i'm still no closer to understanding any of the lyrics it's it's so weird but this is great because the blu-ray will be subtitled so <laughs> exactly yeah finally we'll get the lyrics to sabotage a long, long last. Um, I just wanted to talk as well about uh, Kirk and Spock's arcs in the movie mm-hmm. as well, because uh, Spock obviously is uh, someone at this point who is embracing, again, the more, the more human side of him. We get to see Spock laugh yeah. and smile, which, yeah. is, which is great. But also this this wrestling, I guess, with this future version of himself mm. and with Ambassador Spock passing away. Yeah. And can you talk about that decision? I mean, how you, where you wanted to take this Spock well, in comparison l- to that one? Yeah, Leonard's... Leonard's death uh, came about when we were writing the movie and we knew immediately we were going to have to not have to but we wanted to pay tribute to him and we realised we could do it not in a token way but actually fold it into the plot and have it be the end of Spock Prime as well and and, and how does how do you react to the news that you have died Mm -hmm. as a psychological proposition it's really interesting for for our Spock to, to contend with his own passing you know and um and it was something that just felt like very, very much in the vein of Star Trek and right for a tribute to Leonard. And also, it's never more fun in Star Trek than when you see Spock emoting. You know, when you watch the old series at the end of a mock time or, you know, in, in, in Shore Leave or whatever, when he starts to get a little unspocky, it's so delightful. You want to see more of it because he's like your stern father who never shows emotion. And so when you do see him smile or crack any kind of emotion, you, you lap it up. So we thought, how do we do that? I know, we'll stab him in the side with something and have him get have him get delirious and so he couldn't quite, you know, do the old uh, uh Colinar thing and, and keep it all down. Yeah. And and I love that moment when, when Spock laughs at Bones and they have a little laugh together before Bones realised that Spock's dying and that's why he's laughing. <laughs> uh, and again, very quick, uh, quickly, uh, uh Kirk again is wrestling with I, I figure from the past, yeah. Uh, in a way, you know, his father's legacy and can he live up to that? And yeah, um, did you did you talk about seriously him him leaving the Enterprise at the end of the movie, or was that always just a? a we wanted him to consider it. Yeah. I, I, you know, it, 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 everything comes at the uh, you know he's having this sort of slight crisis of confidence. You know, mm. there's a reason why he says everything's feeling episodic because it's a kind of n- nod back yeah. to the series. It's like my life is just one long series and why did I sign up for this? And we realized that our Kirk did sign up for a different reason and it had a huge emotional weight as well. It was like he was dead to do it because of his dad's death. And, you know, that's why the motorbike comes into it. And, you know, it's not just a sort of gimmick. It's like an emotional representation of his own dad. It's all Mm -hmm. this stuff he's wrestling with. But we wanted him eventually 
to to go through that and come out the other side and realize that he wanted to be there because he wanted to be there, not because he felt like he should be. And it, it just felt like a nice thing to do. We never really discussed what it was like to be cooped up on a tin can for five years with the same people doing the same. Even though your your life is a series of adventures, it's still a heightened monotony, even if it's even if it's heightened, you know. So that felt like a good thing to go through, and also. You know, Justin always spoke about Captain to Captain, Edison and Kirk and what mm. they go through and how Kirk gets lost, but he, he finds himself, whereas Edison never, never came back. Mm. He almost does. Mm. We had a lot of discussions about whether Edison should help Kirk in the end. You know, yeah. when he floats up, we wanted the audience to think, is he going to help him? Yeah. And when we actually had him help Kirk vent the thing, it didn't feel earned. But just the sensation that he might felt like a good idea. Like maybe there was an echo of his humanity that comes back. Yeah. But ultimately Kirk and Kral are different animals. Kirk is the good guy and Kral is the bad guy. And that was our sort of thinking. Uh, speaking of bad guys, I know we've got to, got to run here. But, <laughs> There's a um, publicist here telling us to move. <laughs> yeah, I, of course, did not mean the publicist. Um, <laughs> Was there any discussion about bringing Khan into the movie in some way, given that he's uh, literally on ice? Not moment? from us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there we go. Do you have anything very quick? That's it. That's oh, well, it. Uh, was there any discussion of, obviously, Bill Shatner's talked about uh, yeah. wanting to appear in it. W- would there have ever thought of a Kirk Prime, or is that a Prime too many? Too I, much I think, Prime. I, I think that, that, that it was discussed. I feel like um, it would be a strange thing to see Bill and Chris in the same shot, you know, as as a kind of as the consequence of as Bill being the the ultimate product of Chris's life, it would be strange. I don't know. I mean, you know, that 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 stuff feels maybe a little gimmicky. Yeah. I love Bill. I'm, I'm such a fan of his as an actor. I think he's an underrated actor, despite all the plaudits he gets. But there's there are things. It's always good to do something for the right reason. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe get Chris to do something in Shatnerian next time. Oh, he does off camera, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> the first time he pressed the, uh, the the communication button on the on the captain's chair, he uh, he did a full Shatner, and it was beautiful, amazing. <laughs> and we haven't talked about uh, the the big lifestyle choice for Sulu because you you said it all in your book. hopefully yeah go to SimonPegg.net and see what I think. <laughs> awesome, uh, Simon Pegg, captain of the USS Johnson. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Cheers, man. <laughs> so that was Justin Lin and Simon Pegg, and now it is our turn to talk about Star Trek Beyond. Now some. Should we establish our credentials? I wrote the Star Trek Beyond review for Empire Magazine. I've seen the film a couple of times. I like it a lot. I give it four stars. Helen? Uh, I've been to two Trek conventions, and uh, and I like the film a lot, and I would give it four stars, but I did not, in fact, do so. Okay, excellent. And Jimbo, you liked the film as well? I did, and I've I've watched a lot of Star Trek, and as a teenager, I owned the technical manual to the NCC-1701D <laughs> Enterprise, and whenever I felt a little bit sad, I used to sit and memorise bits of it. I'm awesome. <laughs> when you felt sad, that yeah. was the that was the solution. That was it, yeah. You are truly <laughs> you you'd don't be think shocked to hear I didn't have a girlfriend at the time. You are truly, <laughs> truly awesome. Um, so let's just talk very, very quickly in, in general terms about the film before we get into uh, readers' questions. We have a lot of readers' questions via Twitter uh, because my DMs are open dangerously. Still haven't received any nude shots, no matter how much I beg and plead. It's just it's what's weird, going on. Um, Jimbo, you haven't sent me any. I thought you would at least send me. Just you know, a little little hint. I'll, I'll little, find you know. some Ferengi porn and send it over. Okay, that'd be awesome. Um, <laughs> um, so DMs are open on Twitter, so people sent me questions there, and they also emailed us at podcast at emperorline.com, so we'll be tackling their questions. But in general terms, I thought this movie was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. It has its flaws. We'll get onto that in a second. I think the bad guy is the movie's big flaw, uh, Idris Elba's crawl. Um, but generally speaking, Bones and Spock, 
great band oh god banter sound like lad bible but you know great bands between Bones and Spock um, really liked the new character Jayla I still regret not really mentioning at all Sofia Batella in my review uh, so this is my penance she's fantastic having watched it again twice and she gets a, a really nice arc throughout the film as well so mm. uh, what did you guys think Jimbo what, what, what was the standout no, thing for you I, I agree with you I think the the holy trinity of uh, of um Spurt Cock and Boner was uh, was very well uh, very well serviced in the film in a way that it hasn't been in the previous two and and you've got a lot of of, uh, of, of Kirk and Bones talking to each other uh, and and riffing off each other and you've had some 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 Spock and Kirk but you haven't had proper Bones and Spock and I think that that was quite a strength from a character point of view this time around I like the aesthetic of it uh, I, I like lots of the little riffs on the previous ones I think it, it felt. Like, I love J.J. Abrams, but he's always been a Star Wars guy. He's not a Star Trek guy. And much as they used to make so much hay out of the fact that, well, it's fine because Bob Orsi knows his Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, <laughs> one never really wow. got that impression. And I remember when we had them in for the spoiler podcast and we went, oh, yeah, so there's a planet. And it's like uh, half open. Is that a reference to Praxis from the Undiscovered Country? And he went, sure. Yeah, it, it totally was. He had no idea what we were talking about. So but everyone can have an off day and forget something. Yes, yes, we could give him the benefit of that. But you're still doubt, not. But I'm you? not. I'm not convinced. Uh, and I love Star Trek, and I even quite like Into Darkness. Uh, but I think Star Trek was a Star Trek worked very well because it wasn't a Star Trek film. Because Star Trek films don't cross the divide, and they don't make an awful lot of money. And I think Star Trek works because it wasn't made by a Trekkie, and it it was a sort of an adventure film and I think that was great I think Into Darkness misstepped because <laughs> it was a non-Star Trek fan doing as has been famously described you know Star Trek karaoke like they know the tune they know the words but the heart and soul just isn't there and I just think it misstepped horrendously whereas this one feels like a Trek film without a lot of the Trek trapping but with the spirit of Trek because Peg knows his Trek but the same time you say without a lot of the Trek trappings I thought it does have a lot of Trek trappings it felt like an extended episode to me in, in many many ways there's a moment where uh, Bones and Spock are going towards a sort of temple area where they find the the, the, the markings about the the, uh, the Abronath the, the MacGuffin and can we just call it the MacGuffin? The MacGuffin. Could not let matter less what it's called. I know. I, I mispronounced <laughs> the, the rabbit view of Peg. It's just like, you know, what is it called? Who cares? Uh, it's the ether. Who cares? But, um, yeah, they're, they're, in the, they're in that temple and they're going through this. And it's possibly a real rock formation, but it looked so plastic and cheap. <laughs> and there's a bit where, um, there's a bit where Jalen and Scotty go and investigate some danger. It turns out, of course, to be uh, Kirk and Chekhov. But they don't know that. And Scotty picks up this rock. And I swear that that thing must weigh like a, a feather. It looked polystyrene. It just really it, it had that feeling of original series. I, I'm not sure that's what they were going for. <laughs> no, I, think, I think somebody out there is very embarrassed by what you just said. No, I think there's a, maybe the, the nice little homages to the, the, the cheapness of yes, the original series. Yeah. Okay, but I, I don't think that's the case. Um, I really enjoyed this. I think uh, I agree with you. Star Trek Into Darkness, I think we, we desperately tried to find a bright side at the time, but honestly, the more you think about it the more problems i had with it and the ending still makes me actively angry and this hmm. there were there were there were kind of calls to the fans in that rather than actual meat of a new star trek adventure and this feels like an actual new star trek adventure i think that simon Pegg and doug young have bent over backwards to give everybody in the enterprise crew at least a moment, if not several moments, to shine. I think that's particularly noticeable in the increased cool of uh, Lieutenant Sulu. 
Um, mm. I think that uh, it's definitely noticeable in the increased attention for Bones. I think my only slight criticism about the Holy Trinity is that in this one, after having nothing but Spock and Kirk last time, I didn't feel like we got enough Spock and Kirk this time. Uh, but like this is picking tiny ho- tiny holes because it was so good to see much more Bones. It was so good to see Spock and Bones working together. Mm. Uh, that all worked really, really well. Um, and, and I think it, that's the thing. It doesn't matter to me that ultimately, yeah, I also don't think the villain entirely worked. I certainly didn't think his plot made a lick of sense. I didn't <laughs> care because I was enjoying watching the Enterprise crew yeah. be the Enterprise crew. Yeah. I mean, we said that before in the uh, the regular podcast as well, and I feel that you know, in, in focusing on the Holy Trinity, and I'm putting so much emphasis on Spock and Bones, which I love. I mean, I absolutely love uh, Quinto and, and Urban in this film. They're, they're fantastic together. Uh, I actually feel I, I feel that the other members of the crew were underserved. So I don't. Scotty, Scotty wasn't. Scotty, weirdly, Scotty gets a lot to do in this movie. I don't know how that might have <laughs> happened, but um, I don't feel the others do. Sula gets a couple of cool moments. Uhura, I feel, just gets pressed into I don't think that's having true. a chat with Crawl throughout the movie. She doesn't get anything to do. Could, could I just jump in here and put <clears throat> a, a blanket ban on people referring to her as Uhura? She's not a brand of glue. Uhura, then. Uhura. <laughs> All right. But yeah, otherwise, solid, really, really good stuff. Um, should we take some questions? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so we've got a lot of email questions. These are being taken completely at random. And if we don't like them, we can move on. This is from Ben O'Connell. Hi, people. Really enjoyed Star Trek Beyond, but was disappointed they destroyed the Enterprise again. Could the story not have been told with the crew being captured, being, ship being stranded, and the filmmakers not having to copy the Generation's saucer section crash? <laughs> That's easy for you to say, mate. Um, also, from the moment they abandoned ship, I knew the end of the film would be the reveal of the NCC-1701-A. Shameless attempt to generate an emotion which the film didn't need. Amazing score yet again. Where do you think Chakino's score Enterprise theme fits in the all-time pantheon of film themes? That's three questions, Ben. Oh, man. That was greedy. So in terms of the crash, I agree that what was startling and outrageous originally has become maybe less so over time. Um, And that, yes, we've we've kind of seen that now. I did think it was quite a good uh, ship crash. And I also think, I mean, I think where they came from in terms of setting up that sequence was the fact that they'd always wondered why does nobody just cut it off and you know at, at the blatantly vulnerable point in the middle and and actually it's kind of good to see tactics being used that way it, it kind of made sense and the, you know the, the swarm of little ships as well the way they were just able to sort of move out of the way of torpedoes that was awesome I will however say that uh, those little ships were discovered on that planet as mining tools what the hell were they mining? Well, the asteroids. That they needed... No, but to need a swarm of ships that could punch... It doesn't strike me as perhaps the most efficient way of mining things. No, but I'm sure there's a better if way. If you're mining asteroids, which is a, a sensible... Look, Helen, if Bruce Willis has taught us anything, it's he that didn't. it's easier to teach a man to become an astronaut <laughs> than it is to teach a man to drill. And if Ben Affleck taught us anything <laughs> on the commentary for that scene, you'll know that that's ludicrous. I just um, want to shake the hand of the daughter of the bravest man I've ever met. <laughs> OK, but let's get back away from Armageddon, please. But genuinely, I mean, there are serious at least in sci-fi, speculation about how and and how, why you would mine asteroids. They come through one of the hairiest asteroid belts I've ever seen to get to this thing in the first place. I don't think that's technically... I don't know if that's technically a nebula. It's so thick with rocks. Doesn't that make it an asteroid belt? I'm a little confused. A rockula. Please, physicists, astrophysicists, let us know. A pebula. Thank you. Oh, good. Um, but honestly, like that, that that tiny little scene where the Enterprise was actually negotiating through the asteroid field in in the first place, 
I mean, that could have been drawn out about 10 times as long and I still would have been on the edge of my seat. I thought that was a great scene. Yeah, um, so anyway, so that's presumably yeah. why they exist, is my theory. That really reminded me, actually, of submarine movies. Yes, uh, yeah. which again brings us back to Wrath of Khan and yeah. I think is, is one of the best things about that film. Yeah. You want that sense of naval warfare mm. in these movies. I, I I don't have a problem with him destroying the Enterprise A because the scene is so great. No, it, was just it, the, it wasn't the A. The A is at the end. The A. Oh, okay. Sorry. I'm so sorry. So sorry. Uh, I don't have a problem with that, that scene at all. I think it's it's really interesting because it's it, without it, where do you go with the movie? You're stranding the crew of the Enterprise on this alien planet. Uh, you get to see Kirk destroyed, in a way, by watching his ship, which he suddenly, he's got this love-hate relationship with the Enterprise at the beginning of the movie, and I think that really crystallizes for him. Well, actually, this is my ship. This is my responsibility, and I've screwed it somehow, and now here we are. Um, I really like that, and I, I, I don't mind it. A couple of people have actually sent in questions along the lines of, oh, I knew that the end of the film was going to be the the 1701A. Um, so? Mm. Yeah, as it's soon as they a- mentioned another ship being built on the thing, you're like, well, that, that's all right. The bit in the trailer about the ship being destroyed, <laughs> I, I don't have to worry about it anymore. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, you could argue that how long do they wait on Yorktown for the ship to be completed? I mean, it's going to take... It's not a quick... I mean, I've, I read somewhere once that they can put a McDonald's up in nine days. <laughs> they can't knock together an Enterprise in a couple of weeks, can they? So how long are they spending in Yorktown before they, they get off at the end? Um, but I didn't think it was a, a shameless attempt to generate an emotion. I, I thought that sequence really, really worked. Yeah, and um, I, actually, people are more attached to the 1701 than the 1701A, so I'm not sure generating an emotion is, is the obvious reason for that. I, yeah, I don't think it was really the goal. The point, I mean, the point of the A, I felt the A was a bit of a missed opportunity. I mean, it echoes the A that first turns up in the Voyage Home in that it's more or less the same as the one that was yeah. destroyed. So it's a sense of coming home. It's 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 Kirk back on this familiar ship. But I would have liked if they'd essentially gone the next route. Because I think, is it is the B that's the Excelsior class one, which has a distinctly different sort of bottom heavy yeah. look to it. And I like the fact that all the Enterprises, they did go through an evolution in terms yeah. of hull design. I would have liked to have seen something maybe a little different. I still think the D is the prettiest Starfleet ship. Yeah, I love the D. It's definitely my favourite. The E is okay, but the D is uh, certainly, though I, I don't... I'm just realising how this sounds. What's happening? What's happening? I don't, I don't like the triple nacelled D that turns up in uh, All Good Things yeah, at the end terrible. of Next Generation. That one's a bit poor. Mine's my favorite. You agree, don't you, Chris? Yeah, mine's a W. Yeah. It's yeah. great with the Go Faster Stripes and the engine. Uh, no, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I'm not... Uh, uh, I'm not an enterprise connoisseur in that way. I don't go, oh, well, look at the A. It's clearly... Yeah. But you must have thought that when you saw the Franklin, you must have thought that's almost a dead ringer for the NX-01. I did yes. think that, actually, yeah. because uh, it, it said NX on the... Because mm, <laughs> thing. This is, this is yeah. the first of a few sort of enterprise nods, which we touched in mm. touched on in the interviews, um, that the uh, the Franklin has... I mean, it, it not it's not the Enterprise NX-01, but it has the similar kind of texture to the hull. So it feels very much of that era. Um, Now, forgive me if you've discussed this in the interview because I haven't heard it yet, Um, but there was a suggestion in some stuff I read online that there's a bit of a continuity error with the Franklin. By the way, named after Frank Lynn, Justin Lynn's father, which I think is lovely given all the Kelvin references. We still have the Kelvin pods in this one, so that's lovely for JJ's grandfather. Um, Right, but there may be a continuity problem because um, am I right in saying that in Enterprise, Starfleet existed but not technically the Federation? Yes. Uh, And yet this seems to 
from its numbering and stuff predate or at least sort of be a contemporary to the the enterprise the nx01 enterprise and therefore it doesn't make any sense that the bad guy's talking about the federation because he shouldn't know about it. I think, my, see, my understanding was, because he's a Mako, so he's old Starfleet pre-Federation. My understanding from it, and I might have just, you know, retcon filled in the gaps in my okay. head, was that he was all for it when he was part of Starfleet, but the formation of the United Federation of Planets, I think, was a bad was thing. Really, how, okay. how his being stranded fits into that timeline but is the, a bit questionable. The but, problem was uh, that apparently somewhere it says that that ship, the Franklin, can mm. only do warp four, and the Enterprise <laughs> NX-01, as we know, could do warp five. So it, it could have just been a differently designed sense. ship. That doesn't necessarily mean it was older. It could have simply been a different class of ship, therefore. Because bear in mind, the NX-01 was top of the line. So Yeah, but it was all part of the warp five program. Yeah, it was. And it wouldn't make sense to stop at Warp 4, is what I'm saying. Wow. I know. We got really nerdy right yeah, there. Yeah, we totally should have brought this up with Simon and taken him to task for it. I'm surprised you didn't, Chris, actually, if I'm honest with you. What? <laughs> I think we've lost Chris. We have. Um, I, I, I don't I know. I did, the did, the, the ships attacked the big ship. Yes. And then they made the big ship cry. Beastie Boys! <laughs> hey, um, do we, did, we, did we answer the question? No. We we never, don't you know by now we never answer the question? Uh, let me see. There were five of them. Could the story not have been told with the crew being captured, strip, ship being stranded, and the filmmakers not having to copy the Generation Saucer section crash? Possibly, a, but then it's a completely different crash. It's a different crash. Because yeah. 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 also the ship is destroyed pretty yeah. much before it crashes. Yeah. Uh, and it, and it, does, it does feel different. Um, uh, I think I, I get why they wanted to get rid of the ship. It makes sense, you know. And also it's... It, you monster. No, no, it provides a different dynamic because the ship tends to anchor the story a little bit too much. Yeah. You know, everything's on board the Enterprise. It's more interesting to see them stripped of that environment and, and going full. And it does, you know, it does... Do- it does make it a little bit more difficult for them to get away. You have you yeah. don't have that. Sa- it's the safety net, isn't it, of the ship? That's exactly. what you're saying, essentially. Uh, and also, you know, quite frankly, it's very hard for them to kill crew members, the major, major cast. Mm. So this is a way of doing it, and mm. then making sure that everyone splits off into little pockets. You know, obviously we talked about Bones and Spock, but you know, Kirk and Chekhov together is an interesting dynamic I haven't really seen before. No, neither. Uh, uh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, uh, and Sulu together uh-huh. and Sulu together you know yeah. but obviously with Crawl as the sort of the third wheel yeah uh, Crawl um, interesting point where we get on to some more uh, questions um, is how much this movie does not even reference or acknowledge Star Trek of the Darkness that's kind of interesting don't you think well because they just got away with curing death and they've conveniently forgotten it <laughs> You could argue that. Yeah. yeah. You could. Uh, yes, I, I, I think it's perhaps quite telling. Uh, but also, they didn't want to be hemmed in by it. I mean, we are Simon this, didn't we, uh, at one point? I forget whether the actual microphone was rolling at the time. Um, but so uh, we did ask him at one point whether they were uh, considering picking up any of the story threads from Into Darkness. And he said, no, they wanted to start again do something entirely new it's interesting like we talk about the 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 inconsistencies and we talked about the um you know there might be plot holes or maybe there's some you know the crawl isn't particularly well sketched out i do wonder how many of this can really really be excused by the time constraints they had to operate under with this film it's an incredibly tight turnaround yeah they were they they were first into the release date yeah and i just i feel a little bit like when i was saying to justin so you know what stuff did you shoot they didn't use and he was just like yeah everything's in the movie (laughs) we don't have time to shoot anything else um, and I got the impression it was very much they were I mean he said during the interview that he had been editing it up until the night before and bear in mind I interviewed him on the day of the premiere Wow! and he said he had been finishing it that night 
So, Movies I mean, never really finished. down to they the escape. wire. Well, it may, that may have been adding the tribute to Anton, for example. That's obviously got to have been last minute. It, it's so. possible. It's possible. He said they were still, I mean, wow. he was still putting finishing touches on the actual film because obviously in the digital world, they can do that. They can so. do that. Um, I think that uh, in terms of Star Trek Into Dark, in terms of Star Trek Into Darkness, I think one of the problems they had was they they moved too far down a sort of post 9-11 route and they got into, I mean, all this kind of corruption at the heart of Starfleet, the war, the war machine at the heart of Starfleet, that's so fundamentally wrong to Star Trek that it's really hard to do that and kind of keep your your soul of a Star Trek movie in place. And there was, you know, there was an interesting kind of thought behind it in that film. Obviously, Vulcan's gone. That does have an effect on the on the Federation. I get why you would want to kind of explore that and expand on that and not just hand wave it. You know, it, a civilization was destroyed. That should not be a small thing. And I, I give them credit for not kind of ignoring it in Star Trek Into Darkness. But at the same time if you lose that sense of what the federation is and what starfleet is then you kind of lose the sense of it being a star trek film and it just becomes a n science fiction film mm-hmm. and that that's why i think that subplot of into darkness just felt so wrong and why i think they were right to have starfleet be a force for good in this film you're exactly right it did feel like the destruction of vulcan was the star trek universe's 9-11 which i guess makes uh, Peter Weller they're Dick Cheney but uh, you know it, it, it's nice to see them back away from that because that isn't I mean it's about exploration it's about the betterment of humanity it's about everyone pulling together and and discovery yeah. um, it's the reason why the Enterprise is a family ship not a warship and that's why that's what makes Deep Space Nine so good because it was a war show about war it had a very different tone and when they created the Defiant it was a really big deal because that was a warship and the yeah. Federation doesn't do that kind of thing also it was awesome mm. if you want to hear James wax lyrical <laughs> almost to the point of orgasm about Star Trek Deep Space Nine check out our 50th anniversary podcast it's available now um, sorry can I just very quickly pick up on that because it kind you of can. ties back into something that that's in this film mm-hmm. uh, so the defiant the, the creation of a warship being a big deal this kind of uh, brings me back this is kind of an idea that also comes up in Ian M. Banks culture novels where they suddenly find themselves at war they have to create these rapid offensive units uh, ROUs that uh, that go and do the war thing um, and it's a, because the culture is a, a another peaceful um, sort of utopian society ruled by an immense computer minds in that case um, it's a big deal for them to create a warship uh, but why I mention that is because it comes back into this film's Yorktown station because the design of Yorktown, this crazy globe with everything on the inside pointing inwards and gravity sort of coming to a slightly confused stop in the middle, um, it, that's massively culture. And I just absolutely loved that design. I was, I was, Every so often a sci-fi film comes along that doesn't feel like a sci-fi movie, it feels like a sci-fi novel where they do crazy big bananas ideas that you can't do on screen or you couldn't do on screen until about the last five years yeah. and every time I see one of those films like Avatar felt that way for me um, uh, I just get so excited and, and this was one of those moments and so the Yorktown I just thought was wonderful Yorktown was great and we've mentioned I think in both interviews that Yorktown was the original name of the Enterprise so a nice yes, touch exactly. and the of course Enterprise NCC 1701 or the uh, NCC <laughs> Is well, it? neither. It was in between the Enterprise oh being God, a shut up, shut up. and it being a spaceship. Shut up, <laughs> shut up. Right, um, here's a question from Dave Moran. 
Obvious one. Why did Kroll never salvage slash repair his Federation starship, the USS Franklin? Uh, he didn't know it was there because of the, the, the cloaking device. He would have probably known it was there because he came there. Yeah, he landed in it. Because so. she, oh, yeah, she took it she over is. and then set up those little camo projectors. Yeah. It still would have been where it was. That's like, a good point. I forgot that. No. But yeah. then maybe he didn't have an app on his phone. That yeah. <laughs> Did we mention how quickly they made starship. this film? <laughs> maybe, maybe they ejected in like escape pods. So good. didn't land in the ship. And he uh-huh. didn't see where the ship came down or how damaged it was. And maybe it took Possibly. them a while to develop the technology that they had. And by that point, they'd kind of forgotten about looking for the ship, maybe? I never got the impression (laughs) that they were stranded, because bear in mind, they've got the swarm, and the swarm flies, so I get the impression they could have left if they'd wanted to, but he was biding his time. Because bear in mind, he knew the Yorktown was there, he'd hacked into the Yorktown. So I think he was just being cunning. I think Crawl, and let's talk about Crawl now, because we've got about half an hour left here. So let's talk about Crawl now, Um, because there could be a lot to talk about with Crawl. I think... There's an interesting character, an interesting backstory struggling to get out there um, and doesn't quite make it. Like I say, Crawl is the big weakness of the film for me. He's like, you, 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 he's ultra generic bad guy and you cast an actor like Idris Elba to try and elevate the material and I don't think that quite worked here. But going back to his, his backstory, yeah. So they, you see that video, that sort of, Event Horizon yeah. hmm. slash Sunshine video of the crew, and you think, okay, that might play in somehow later on. And then you, uh, so they're, they they arrive on the planet, and they're, they they've crash landed on the planet. There's no doubt about that. They've gone through the nebula. Something's gone wrong uh, to the Franklin. The way that the Enterprise manages to navigate that asteroid field, yeah. the Franklin doesn't, so it crashes. But they're happy initially in that video to be on the planet and alive. That's okay. But then help doesn't come because they can't get their their distress signals through the nebula to the Federation. Okay. And maybe Yorktown's not even there, so maybe there's help is even further away. So no one knows they're there, and no one's going to help them. But you're right. In theory, they're not stranded. In theory, they could get into the, the bees and fly. But how, how long distance are those things? The sense I get is that it's on the, the other side of the nebula, yeah. so maybe Yorktown's easy to get to, but... It didn't look like they had warp capability. Yes. Yeah, deep space is not something that they can explore mm. in those It's things. sort of like uh, Han Solo and the, you know, the TIE fighter. Well, yeah. Too far exactly out that. in space to be out here on its own kind of thing. It, it, yeah. It's interesting, how far away is the Yorktown? Because I'm assuming that yeah. the Enterprise gets from the Yorktown to the nebula under impulse power, because otherwise the swarm would never have been able to reach the Yorktown. Quite, quite so. right. Yeah, it's a little bit confusing, the, the sort of the placement of that. Um, how far away the Yorktown's supposed to be. Because, so the Enterprise has been in deep space for three years. It's come back to kind of refuel, a bit of R&R, a bit of shore leave, mm-hmm. let Suda catch up with his husband and kids. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, it should still be a bit of an outpost, presumably. Mm. I think the idea is it's it's a very remote, it's, I believe reading it's the, the Federation's most remote outpost. Okay. but it's And they clearly know about this nebula, but don't know there's anything in it. Um, which is kind of interesting because there's a heck of a lot of alien races crash landed on this planet. Why are they there? Presum- maybe they're genuinely. Maybe the mining ships are a clue. Maybe there genuinely is something valuable in the, in those asteroids in the asteroid belt inside mm. the nebula. My reading is that uh, maybe crawl over the over the years have been drawing, drawing ships more in, in, possible because he needs his energy. And this is the thing. I think crawl initially when he was when he was Balthazar Edison didn't. 
you know, you see him in that, that, that video and he actually seems quite happy and quite optimistic. And I think maybe he was at one point, even though he was angry about no longer being a maker. Is that, is that right? Mm. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for the enterprise nerd here. Um, so maybe he was angry about that on a underneath the surface. But gradually over the, over the time as he stayed on the planet, maybe his crew started to die or maybe he discovered the reason I get of it is he discovered the the space vampire thing he discovered the I don't even know how I mean that, that needs to be filled in how he discovered the ability to become that space vampire that he is yeah and so I think the implication is clear that he's the one picking off his crew apart from him and his his right hand man it felt a little bit I mean the the rabbit's foot was not particularly well uh Elaborated on like what it does, how it did. I mean, Justin Lin did refer to the fact that there was a kind of a, a, a prologue sketched out originally that would have explained at least the relevance of it and what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, black stuff comes out of it, kills you, brilliant. Uh, but I think less developed than that was this sort of, you know, life force parasitic thing that Crawl has. So, I mean, because you don't get the impression he's using any kind of device. It feels like yes. it's some a power that he has. Mm. But since he's inherited it, is it some kind of genetic manipulation? Does he have a special suit on? Is there a glove? I don't really know. Has he been bitten by something? Yes. Is there Was something that lives on the planet? Thing. If so, where is it? Is it still there? Um, is it a little worm that crawled into his ear? Is it? <laughs> but they, And they also, they don't really, I mean, I guess you're supposed to intuit it, but the fact that he seems to take on the physical characteristics of whatever race he's drawing life force from, mm. because he changes a bit inconsistently after every time he does it. So, mm. Mm. curiouser and curiouser. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah it, it, it's it's a shame because... We love Big Driss in the podcast. We do. And, crow, uh, crow, 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 Kirk, Lufa. <laughs> yeah, he's always he's always off counting apocalypses, and then this one he's trying to start one. It doesn't end well. Um, but I just, I just, I, yeah, I just feel that the role could have been a bit better, a bit better written, and and the 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 blanks could have been filled in a little bit more. Definitely. Uh, with him. Um, so this is the same question, uh, same person, Dave Moran, asking. Was the Green Hand in Space reference the most obscure Easter egg in any of the new Trek movies so far? Yes. I was the only one on my uh, screen that laughed. Of course, Dave, you're referring to the giant Green Hand in Space because they're talking about what maybe happened to the Franklin. And Bone says that maybe, you know, no, uh, Scotty says there were, there were rumours that, you know, it was uh, shot down by Romulans or captured by Romulans or scooped up by a giant Green Hand in Space, which, of course, we all know is a reference to the, the 31st episode of uh, the Star Trek original <laughs> series. <laughs> Who mourns for Adonis? Uh, Adonai, but Adonai, sure. damn it, damn it, <laughs> so close. And it is in fact the god Apollo. Uh, yeah, you actually see the green hand during the credits. If anyone stays yeah. for that, uh, which is a nice little reference. Is that obscure? I don't think that's obscure. I think it's pretty I famous. actually think the the line in the first one, uh, the first JJ Abrams one about um, uh, Scotty being upset because uh, Admiral Archer's dog. <laughs> uh, disappeared during one of his warp experiments. Um, that actually, like a lot of people, just didn't connect that Porthos. to Enterprise, including Simon Pegg himself. We asked him about that in an interview, and he literally, I don't think, got I, it that's initially. Funny, I didn't know that. Um, so that's pretty obscure. Wow. And, but then we asked him about this because there's references to the Zindi in there, who were mm-hmm. in many ways the one good thing in Enterprise, um, and obviously the Franklin, which looks very Enterprisey. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Enterprise yeah, and the makers are the from show, Enterprise as well. We have, a, we have a sort of question from uh, at the Anarchy, who um, 
uh, it was disappointed by the lack of references to previous series. Uh, it felt it was more like a celebration of the original series rather than Star Trek as a whole. There were references to the Cindy Wars and Enterprise. The Franklin seems to be partly named for Ensign Franklin, who died in the same transportation shenanigans as Scotty in The Next Generation. That's not the case. It's no. named after Justin Lin's dad. Yeah. Um, However, that seemed to be all I could spot for the next generation. Um, having grown up with Janeway, Jadzia, Belana, and Hoshi as my role models, I probably mispronounced that as well. It was this point to not see them referenced in some way, especially as uh, Hoshi invented the Universal Translator. I was about to um, say, well, Hoshi's from Enterprise, not the next gen one, so I think she's, yeah. you know. I, I, I think f- he means mostly. Yeah. Uh, well, it's timeline, isn't it? I mean, these things take place in the future. I know that's, you know, ultimately it doesn't matter if you're riffing on stuff, but they do seem to be reflecting on things that have happened at up to that star date, if you will. Yes. Um, and they're leaving Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Next Gen alone. I also like to think that both Franklin and Yorktown are Hamilton references, obviously. <laughs> of course um, you do. <laughs> but, uh, well, no, literally, there's a line in, in the song about the Battle of Yorktown, about the world turning upside down, and it does in this scene at Yorktown. It's amazing. It does. <sighs> okay. What that was happened? my... It's fine, Chris. Move what, on. What just happened? What just happened? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think it's weird that the, the, the show... A film that takes place before the next generation doesn't reference the next generation? Yeah. Maybe just me. Okay, here's another one. This is uh, from Walter Jai Wardner uh, on Twitter. Is Idris Elba's villain, we're not finished talking about him, too similar to Eric Bana's villain in the first Trek movie? Rogue Miner, yeah. Not really. Yeah, and again, I have to say, the health and safety (laughs) in Kroll's lair. Why does he call himself Kroll? Anyway, um is really not up to scratch. There's a bit where they're they're walking Sulu and Uhura through uh, the mining lair. And again, huge drops, no handrails. Just what's going on? It's it's the same architect who designed the Death Star. That's I mean, right. It just doesn't make any sense. It's on Starkiller base. I mean, um, yeah. 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 What was the question? <laughs> I've completely forgotten. Oh, the question was, is Edward Elbus too similar to Nero? Oh, well, the, the thing is, the mining thing I thought was an odd thing to revisit that, because obviously Nero's ship is a future mining vessel. And I think, that's, I think that was a kind of a cool touch in the first one. It struck me as a slightly odd thing to partly revisit the being well, done in by mining equipment again. I think, yeah, I think, the, the, I think you're dealing with the fact that war machines are not usual in this mm. universe, and therefore... They're trying to come up with... Well, they, well, they are usual in this part. universe. They're just not usual with the Federation. Yes, so the so Romulans you, have been building war machines I for know, a long time. But Thank you. But um, <laughs> I think they could have gotten around that by just having him be a little local warmonger or something. Like yeah. they, could have, they could have dealt with that in, in other ways. Uh, we have a couple of questions from an Ali Plum. Oh, never Ali heard of him. Ali Plum? No, it doesn't ring a bell. Uh, Hello, but, Ali. Hey, Ali. Uh, why does it take so long for Kirk to abandon a ship? when everything is immediately fucked. <laughs> <laughs> because he's the captain. He, he has to be the last one off the ship. He's, he is the last one off the bridge. And it, it also, you, you don't just immediately go, right, we're fucked, abandon ship. Um, you, you wait until... I think the answer to this is that he's a terrible, terrible tactician. And I'll tell you why. Because if you notice at the end of J.J. Abrams' first Star Trek, they detonate, yes, detonate a black hole... <laughs> In the middle of Nero's ship. And what do they do? They, they sit there, they have a chat with him for a couple of minutes and then go, fire everything we've got. So they're shooting phasers and photons at a ship, which up until then had been entirely impervious to both. All the while, a black hole is blossoming in the middle of it, making such an assault utterly redundant, and then completely imperiling the, the Enterprise, at which point they have to jettison and detonate the warp core just to get away. But what they should have done was gone, see ya, warp. I will say, well, I think you're... 
you know, I think they were trying to distract him so he wouldn't also warp, I guess. I don't think don't you know. can warp out of a black hole when Maybe it's in the can. middle of your ship. They, they are not actually <laughs> vacuum cleaners in space, you know, that isn't how... Anyway, it's fine. Um, <laughs> I think the, the... I do think that the modern films have lost a little bit of Kirk's nerdiness. Um, because Kirk, as well as being a fighter and a lover, is a giant bookworm given to quoting, you know, Shakespeare or uh, Herbert Melville or whoever at the drop of a hat, who reads a lot and who has studied his military history. And I feel like we've lost that a little bit. I feel like, you know, we have people talk about the Picard manoeuvre. There should be like a Kirk manoeuvre as well. There were lots of Kirk manoeuvres in the old series. And actually what you would usually see in the old series is not him just punching someone out, but in some way outwitting them first mm. and and you don't see that I think enough here I think the Kirk manoeuvre is something slightly different but it involves two cat girls so we can't really talk about it on this podcast <laughs> speaking of which though uh, sabotage because that obviously played during the cat girl scene last time um, it played obviously in the car theft in the yep. first one but it has reached its apotheosis surely oh my god here. that is my scene of the year I'm not even kidding it was amazing I which loved one? it sabotage Oh yeah, sorry. I, I was just, I was just, I just thought that was that was that was properly jump up out of your seat and high five a stranger moment. It was just yeah. brilliant. <laughs> Several people have asked me uh, because of my review. I mentioned a moment in the third act which I thought could prove divisive, and they were wondering what moment it was. And it's the it's the the sabotage moment because I think it's fantastic. Mm. And having seen it again with an audience, it seemed to play really really well. Yeah. Uh, but I know that there might be some Star Trek purists out there who, who are furious about it in some way. You know, pop music in a Star Trek movie, what the hell? You know, It was classical music, actually. Classical music, of course. <laughs> and uh, But I think I thought it worked really, really well. And the uh, and like as I say, I'm still no closer to understanding the lyrics of that song. I still don't know what they say. Beastie Boys lyrics don't make any sense. Everyone knows that Beastie Boys lyrics make no sense. Sabotage? I think I, I get that bit, but... Yeah. It did. It worked extremely well, and I like the bit when uh, when the Yorktown, the guy in the comms office, is essentially going, "Right, we've got the transfer." She's like, "Punch it!" And then you get the sort of the Beastie Boys scream yeah. as they just wipe out a whole wave of the little bees. That was amazing. Uh, very. That good. wasn't though just a guy. That was obviously JJ's lucky charm. Yes, it was indeed Greg Greg Grunberg, Greg, who yes. is in charge of the Yorktown. Yeah. Oh yeah, old Snap Wexley himself. One of the one of the. It's increasing. Is it? It's going to happen. You're going to get people here in Marvel and DC universes. You're going to get now people who are. In Star Trek and Star Wars. Yeah. Yep. He's, he's the Wes Wally of, uh, of Hollywood. He kind of is, yeah. Yeah, it was a, it was a really, really a lot of fun. Um, um, another question from Manny Plum, and this is interesting. Again, this is going back to Idris Elba, <clears throat> but I think we can then talk about the end of the movie with mm. this one as well. Um, shouldn't Idris's character's reasons for being a bad guy have been revealed earlier so we could at least partly sympathise with his reasoning? I mean, I didn't think his reasons were strong enough that you would ever sympathise with no. his reasoning whenever the, whenever those were revealed. Um, so I think that was a problem with the film. Mm. Yeah. Um, I, think that, I think the choice was made, and I said this again in my review, I think a lot of this movie is a reaction to Star Trek Into Darkness, where the bad guy was so utterly dominant from the off that many of the other characters bled into the background, Bones being one of them, but he blew everyone off screen, Cumberbatch. And I think... Uh, Elba in this movie Crawl in this movie is a mystery wrapped inside a riddle wrapped inside layers of prosthetics and you just you have him on the edge of the story uh, a mystery I thought his entrance was fantastic you know that, that shot where he comes in on his big B crashes the Enterprise you have that, the camera 
you know, tracks into him and he just lands and then looks evil. But then he just proceeds to spit out a bunch of bad guy one-on-one stuff. And it's it's a bit of a shame, you know, all I'm counting on it. I'm, oh, you evil Kirk. Oh, mm. oh you and your good hair. All those things he says. Um, but the end of the movie... Oh, you and your good hair. Yes, that was one of my favourite lines. That's an actual line. Because he doesn't have any hair. And he's oh. envious of it. Um, the end with Kirk fighting Kroll... Did I feel a little bit like the Spock Khan stuff at the end of Into Darkness? Did I feel too much like that for you? Or it felt a little bit too echoey for me? A little bit, yeah. Um, but I was enjoying it from a culture point of view. So that's a culture as in banks, <laughs> not culture as in any meaningful form of culture. So um, so I, I, I was still kind of having a nice time. Helen presents fun with gravity. Yes. <laughs> also someone uh, suggested, in fact it wasn't someone, it was, uh, it was us at a Simon Pegg interview, that um, Crawl, there's a moment where you think Crawl is almost going to redeem himself. Uh, and Pegg actually suggests that they shot that. Mm. They shot a moment where Crawl actually realises what he's done but they thought it wouldn't play emotionally, that he hadn't earned the redemption. Fair enough. Do you agree with that? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but it's funny because I thought the same thing. He comes out, is he going to help? And yet there's a part of you that's sort of like already sort of rolling your eyes. And he didn't, which was good. Here's a question from Bob McCow. Uh, actually, it's a request. Can we have Jayla back as a crew member for the next film? I think it's possible, given that she's, last we see, apparently headed off to Starfleet Academy. She could do a sort of... Uh, Ensign Rowan turn up and be a little bit of a force for chaos on the bridge. And advancement is very quick in Starfleet Academy, lest we forget. Kirk <laughs> went from cadet on suspension to captain of the flagship in about 20 minutes. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know. So there's a, you know, if that were to translate into real life, I could be head of this company by lunchtime, which would be lovely. Fantastic. Uh, that would be... We'll take raises, please. <laughs> no, that much. would be terrible for everybody. <laughs> oh, you're right. It I would forgot. be flames. And... <laughs> no. Um, I, I will say I, I did have a little bit of a, an issue with Jayla I thought she was brilliant I really really enjoyed her I, I thought her scenes with Scotty worked really really well um, her look was also cool like it was yeah. a really well designed character which I thought was really nice um, my issue was that she's a little bit like uh, a lot of female characters a lot of uh, quote unquote strong independent female characters <laughs> who we've seen in recent years who turn up show off how strong female and independent they are and then don't have any actual bearing on the plot Um, and once she sort of introduced Scotty to the ship she ceased to have a, a very formative role in the story and that sort of slightly irritated me I think she still she wasn't the worst example of this by any means you know people like um uh, Astrid in How to Train Your Dragon and uh, uh, the Kate Blanchett's mum also in How to Train Your Dragon 2 um, people like uh, Wildfire in the Lego movie has no bearing on anything after being introduced and being really cool um, so she's not the worst example of that because she still you know helped out had a role had an argument about them taking her ship which you know is good I think it is not something mm. that she should automatically just hand over Um but at the same time, she did fade into the background in the third act, and I kind of wish her that she hadn't. Yeah, true, but these things are so difficult to, to manage. Oh, I know, I mean, it's, and, it's, and as I say, I think they did yeah. a, um, an, a wonderful job of getting everybody something to do. Mm. I felt at the end, you're right, like uh, Scotty takes her with him uh, to be his his eyes, essentially, as they're trying to find ways for Kirk to battle crawl. Uh, did she really need to be there? Mm. I mean, but you know, I thought she had some great lines. I thought uh, Sophia Patella knocked her out of the park. This one looks great. Um, uh, you take my house and make it fly. Great lines. Beats uh, and shouting. 
Yeah, she likes the beats and shouting. So yeah. I would really, really be happy to see this this character come it's, back. It's a problematic dynamic to have something to do. I agree with Helen. I think she was, as ever, brought in, was awesome, kicked some ass, then proceeded to do nothing. <laughs> uh, but it's a difficult dynamic to... I mean, it's not Mission Impossible where he can have a foil, you know, a partner and an equal. There's already quite a crowded roster and they've all got quite a lot yeah. to do. And then to try and bring in... Yeah, as Aaron Sorkin used to say when he wrote The Western, to find another mouth to feed from a screenwriting perspective yeah. can be quite challenging. Um, and I guess to make her part more substantial, they would have had to have relegated one of the crew members. I'm not necessarily against that, because I think she would have been awesome. Uh, but there you go. What's interesting, and uh, I really like this, is that there's no romance crowbarred yeah. into this mm. film. Uh, especially when you consider, when I first saw the trailer and they had that, that money shot of Kirk grabbing Jayla and being teleported back onto what we now know as Sir Franklin um, you assumed well I assumed anyway and I'm sure lots of people did that you know they were going to get it on Marvin Gaye style maybe Kirk, not he was while transporting the Kirk <laughs> oh yeah what no um, but they didn't they, they didn't go there in fact if anything Scotty's got his lecherous eye on Jayla oh, at, the, yeah. at the end of the movie yeah. his arm around it you don't understand oh, hello. I can I can help you advance through Starfleet oh <gasps> Christopher. Just saying, just saying. But, you know, again, this is a life or death situation and they didn't really have time for that sort of stuff. Yeah. Although the, the uh and Spock stuff, uh, I quite I quite enjoyed yeah, that. Yeah, I enjoyed that as well. Um, and I think that, again, if you look back at the original series, Kurt is not quite such a ladies' man as he is. As, as popular legend would have it so it's kind of okay that it's not every always, episode yeah. although he and the Gorn I think had something <laughs> special some very interesting ideas uh, go through the movie in terms of how the main characters are, are driven so Kirk is driven by uh, and you may roll your eyes at this Helen by you know the idea that he never knew his dad he has dad issues which mm-hmm. I know is maybe something anyway father um, complex uh, <laughs> I thought it was a bit disappointing in a way they mentioned his mother like, uh, Bone says to me you're going to call your mom mm. and he says yes I'll call and later then you on don't I see thought, it. you don't see I it know. I wonder if it was shot or maybe not used um, but Spock is obviously driven in this movie by the knowledge that is would bake anyone's noodle that he's dead that his future self ambassador Spock has passed away yeah now let's talk about that but also then the what I thought was a lovely tribute throughout the movie to Leonard Nimoy um, and in fact just a lovely there's that, that moment at the end with the, the picture of the the crew of the Enterprise which it's, is in fact I believe a publicity still from Star Trek V yeah I thought it was beautiful oh it's gorgeous and I think so I, I think it's interesting that his his kind of um, concerns about his role in life obviously predate the knowledge um, about Ambassador Spock because he's already broken up with Uhura when they arrive at Yorktown and he's met by the Vulcan ambassadors to tell him um, about that. So he's clearly already kind of, again, this is this is repercussions of the destruction of Vulcan, which is right and proper and correct. And I think it was just, it was just so wonderfully played and I think it plays as a, as a tribute to Nimoy. And I think what's great about that is it, it plays on real life in the same way that the original Wrath of Khan did. Um, in the in the original Wrath of Khan, you had 30 years of history between these two characters, which is why that final scene destroys me every mm. time. And in this one, you had 50 years of history. And that's why it has so much power to it. And, I, and obviously, you know, the, the story of Nimoy himself, you have all of that hanging over it. And I think it just makes it really much more moving than than 
the amount of time devoted to it in the screenplay would suggest, because we all feel it. Absolutely. And uh, I thought the the touch at the end with the the picture of the the cast of the oh, Enterprise yeah. was was well, I, like I say a really really lovely one. Um, it's, it's, it also reminds you the world in which this takes place. It's funny. Simon was saying I think after the interview, if I recall, we were having a chat afterwards. He was saying that he was initially a little bit conflicted on whether or not to have that picture in there. And he was like, he went backwards and forwards on it a little bit. But in the end, having been resistant, was quite in favour of it. And rightly so, because it works very oh, it's well. wonderful, yeah. It's a lovely, a lovely touch, and it anchors the two, the two timelines together quite nicely. Yeah. So he said that off the record. <laughs> yes, okay. so a massive breach of confidence there. <laughs> okay. I don't Just, think uh, he'll mind. No, I don't think he will. Um, lovely touch. And, uh, and again, at the end, uh, the moment when Kirk is making the toast at the end, and he says to absent friends, and it cuts to a shot of yes. yeah. Chekhov. That was very touching as well, very moving. And at the end, last night, I watched it last night uh, with a with a paying audience. And um, when the Four Anton tribute comes up at the end, came up at the end, people actively gasped and sighed. And you could just you could really feel it. There's a lot of there's a lot of emotion driving this movie. And I, I'm you know I really like that. I really like the fact that you know obviously there's there's a lot of there's it's driven by a lot of real life tragedy, but the movie itself is character-based and has a lot of emotion and a lot of substance to it. Uh, and I really like that in a, in a summer where the emphasis has been a whiz-bang. Yeah, and I think I think a lot of that emotion comes from, um, comes from the sense of optimism and the sense of fundamental hope that Gene, Gene Roddenberry originally introduced into Star, Star Trek. I think mm. it's what's, what sets this franchise, what makes this franchise part of what it is. I think it's also part of what made Civil War work, actually, yeah. earlier in the summer. You, you, the sense that there is a, a force for goodness. And I think sometimes we move too far away from that. Batman v Superman. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it, it, it just, that you have that behind you and it, and it just kind of fills the, it's like wind filling the sails and it drives it forward. It is interesting though because at the, at the same time the dilemmas that drive Kirk and Spock in this movie you don't believe for a second that they will choose to leave the Enterprise that Kirk will take the vice admiral position that Spock will go off and go to New Falcon and start making lots of little baby Spocks but at the same time Quinto and Pine uh, are so good in these roles mm. uh, that they completely sell it and they make you believe and I really do feel that with this movie I mean they, they've always been good but with this movie in particular, they now own these roles. You know, there's, there's still Pine in particular still throws in little Shatnerisms from time to time. But otherwise, you know, I don't think there's any vestiges anymore of Nimoy or, or Shatner or previous iterations. You, you know, I wonder whether, I think certainly for me, having Nimoy in the 2009 Star Trek really sold Quinto for me. Just seeing them together on screen, just it felt like it wasn't a cheap copy actually felt like he was a reflection of it and now I can't think of anyone but Quinto playing Spock I mean the thought that I mean they locked him for another film but after that he'll probably not do any more he certainly said that he might want to explore other options I think you are kind of have to leave this there you can't then recast that I mean, I'd absolutely love them to reboot the next generation and do something. Uh, that would be fantastic but uh, You're available for Picard I am you? absolutely available to play Picard yes <laughs> <laughs> um, so where's it going to go next so we know that I mean assuming that this movie does well enough at the box office to mm. make Star Trek 14 uh, a possibility uh, because it, it did 
okay. It's pretty, it seems weird to be talking about a $60 million opening weekend as being okay, but the fact is this would need to get about $350, $400 million worldwide minimum in order for them to go ahead with uh, a budget of the size that you would imagine mm. a Star Trek movie would need. Um, so I hope it does well. It's a, it's a really good movie in the summer of dross, and I hope that it does well. And I hope we get that fourth movie, not least because I'm excited about this, the idea that Chris Hemsworth is somehow going to play George Kirk again. Mm. Uh, yeah, some kind of yesterday's Enterprise, <clears throat> I guess, except yesterday's happy. Kelvin. You're not happy? No. Why? I, it just doesn't strike me as a good idea. It's it's slightly worrying. Again, father complexes I have a problem with. Um, and also that, that opening to Star Trek 2009 was really perfect yeah why would you why would you mess with that why would you I mean if he's still alive in some fashion that completely defangs that whole prologue which upsets it's me. got to be time travel uh, probably yeah, but can, I, honestly I, I'm very pleased to see another Star Trek film but Star Trek Discovery is actually Star Trek Discovery sorry the TV as it's, show, as it's yeah. now called officially uh, is, is in many ways more exciting to me I think that Brian Fuller's TV show that's for me is where Star Trek is going that's certainly where I shall be looking mm. And that takes place in the prime timeline, so not the one of the J.J. post Yes, the prime film. timeline where you get all your packages delivered within 24 the hours. prime line? No, never mind. <laughs> um, we also, I mean, I, I, J.J. has correctly, I think, said that they won't recast Chekhov. I think that's, mm. that's, mm-hmm. that's right and proper. Um, so I, I hope they do a sort of a Paul Walker. He's been promoted. He's been, um, you mm-hmm. know... He's gone off to explore another part of the galaxy. He's maybe yeah. he's married a green-skinned girl and <laughs> settled down to have slightly lighter green-skinned babies. I don't know, um, but but I just I, I wish Chekhov well. Yeah, absolutely. I am excited about the idea of George Kirk coming into it. I think there's uh, there's potential for a lot of complexity in the relationship between. Uh, yeah, it's, as much as it's interesting for Spock to meet his future self and see where he has gone as a Falcon uh, and where he's grown. Isn't it really interesting, just in a pure science fiction level, for a character to meet his dad, uh, who has been dead for 30 years? Like frequency. Like frequency. Maybe it could be that. Frequency. Actually, I think I've sold myself on it. Okay, frequency. I just think it's interesting. Hemsworth, we know, is going to rock it. So as long as he doesn't become the focus of the movie, and I hope they don't make him the bad guy, that would be terrible. But um, I'm intrigued. Can he he bring Mike Hatt with him? It strikes me as, as, as the first thing to reveal about this film. It strikes me as, I don't know if I want to call it a spoiler, but certainly an odd first reveal. Do you know what I mean? If that's going to be the plot point you're going to give away first, that's... That's a big one. But yeah. It's, but look, it's got us talking about it. And, and it's, it's, yeah, but look at I'm my excited. face. It's got you're me frowning. Not, you're not happy. I'm excited about where this can go. And Star Trek and time travel have worked pretty well in the past. So if he's coming forward, if Kirk and co are going back, who knows? It, but Too much time travel. Star Trek has delved very successfully into both parallel dimensions and time travel, but it did use it very sparingly. And I can't help that if you're whipping out time travel for the second time in four movies... Yeah, the more they they go back to the well, it used to lessen it. So yesterday's Enterprise was great. The revelation that Tashi Yar had a Romulan daughter, not so brilliant, you know? Um, yeah. True, but you know they whipped it out in Star Trek Four, and then they whipped it out again in Star Trek Eight. So, yeah, they haven't exactly been hiding their time travel light under a under a big HTL bushel. But, you know, <laughs> okay, yeah. And on that note, so sorry if we didn't get around to answering all your questions via Twitter and via email. Uh, there were loads. 
but we appreciate them. Uh, hope you enjoyed it as well. Uh, for that is it for our Star Trek Beyond Supporter Special. Uh, join us every Friday for the regular film-related fun uh, on the Mothership podcast, uh, the NCC 1701, if you will, of Empire Podcasts. <laughs> the NX01 even. I eh? don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I thought it was quite clear. Uh, keep your ears peeled as well for upcoming specials, including our Suicide Squad spoiler special uh, with director David Ayer and our next live podcast. Yes. It's very, very exciting as well. It's going to be September 24th. Fourth, we think. Am I announcing this out of turn? I probably am. Anyway, uh, we th- it's going to be at Empire Live, which is our huge jamboree at the O2 in London from September 23rd to the 25th. Uh, our podcast, it looks like, will be on the 24th. Uh, do come along. Do see that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, and why not come the whole weekend? Why don't you? The ticket packages are on sale now. www.empirelive.com that's amazing there we go Uh, until next time on the Empire Podcast it's time for a falcon salute that you won't be able to see but I think you'll be able to feel it from James make it so (laughs) Uh, from Helen live long and prosper and indeed from me which one how do I get the fingers together there we go there There it is I can do both hands fuck you Uh, right (laughs) on that bombshell (laughs) it's goodbye from me as well Uh, thanks for listening see you next time bye